Greetings listeners and welcome to another episode of Laps Game Radio. I'm Lee, your host for today, and I'm joined by my fellow LGR teammates Mark, Andy and Adam. How are you doing, gents? Hello. Hello. Hey, not too bad, thanks. Today's show is the second in our Ballyhoo format in which we seek out other media associated with video game IPs. Our last episode we discussed Chris Golden's official Uncharted novel, The Fourth Labyrinth, and under this umbrella of Ballyhoo. You may feature episodes on mediums such as live action, animated film, TV, music, board games, etc. Basically anything. As outlined on the first Ballyhoo episode, with this branch of Laps Gamer Radio, we hope to provide extended opportunities for Laps Gamers to access the hobby if actually pick up the controller is proving elusive, and ultimately enrich our experience of some of the multimedia universes created by these properties. In this instance, we are discussing the first volume of the comic book series Fables, created and written by Bill Willingham, published by DC's Vertical to go in print which as we've discussed on a recent LGR playlist instalment provided the inspiration for Telltale Games graphic narrative adventure The Wolf Among Us so in this case the IP was created in a different media first and then adapted into video games and then vice versa as we explained in our playlist episode The Wolf Among Us game has since inspired its own series of comics so everything's kind of come full cycle and uh, we're going to be discussing our thoughts on the first five issues that comprise fables volume one and as such if you'd rather not hear specific plot details and events we advise you to stop listening and save this episode for your leisure at a later date um i'm going to be preemptive and say we, st- we definitely think it is worth seeking out volume one and uh, they don't take too long to read and we think you know the time investment is well worth it mm. yeah five issues it's not it's not much although saying that i think a couple of us did go right up to the deadline (laughs) (laughs) when we finished reading them (laughs) Uh, so just a quick disclaimer uh this episode is solely focused on volume one of the fables comic book series we won't be touching on later story acts today or delving into the broader expanded fables series but they include jack of fables the literals 1001 nights of snowfall Peter and Max, a Fables novel, and Cinderella, Fables Are Forever, and Fairest, and prose stories such as A Wolf in the Fold. However, it should be noted that many other artists would work on Fables, such as Mark Buckingham, Jao Ruas, uh, Brian Talbot, P. Craig Russell, Mike Allred, and Linda Medley. So the Fables comic book series by Bill Willingham was published monthly by Vertigo from July 2002 to July 2015 and ran for 150 issues. Bill Willingham playfully introduces his then new series in the following words taken from the On The Ledge page of issue one. My new series is called Fables. It concerns the adventures of the best-known characters from fable and folklore living in exile in modern New York, on the run from an unknown adversary whose armies have conquered and occupied their fabled homelands. It stars, among others, such old favourites as Snow White, Rose Red, Bigby Wolf, you should be able to figure out who he is, and Prince Charming, portrayed in ways you won't find in any kids' animated movies. (laughs) We've taken out the requisite show tunes and fart jokes and put back the sex, violence, horror and human misery that were stripped out of these towers way back when. (laughs) And a quote taken from the Fables community wiki says, Mixing mystery, action, humour and more, Fables follow these cherished characters war against the adversary and their ongoing struggle to survive alongside one another in the modern world. I just wanted to pick up the point what he said about taking out the requisite show tunes and fart jokes and put back the sex wise. It, it, it is like, although it's transposed onto sort of like 80s and 90s um, when is this one set, The Wolf Among Us is set in the 80s and this is set um, late 90s, early 2000s I think. Mm. 
20 years so like a contemporary yeah. New Yorker yeah. anyway but you're right yeah. obviously they they deliberately stylize the game in a certain way and wraps it around a genre very much actually like this first story arc yeah. does it's another murder mystery but the the, the, the tone is very much closer to um, the original fairy tales in a lot of cases than say the Disney versions of them because a lot of those old fairy tales like Hans Christian Andersen stories are really really dark yeah they're life morals aren't they to shape your uh, understanding and, uh, and that's true I mean I think he um, as I, I believe we are going to mention a bit further on drawing from something else that Willingham said but he, he clearly obviously was fond of these stories grew up with them as I imagine a lot of us did um, when we were kind of read them probably by a parent or a grandparent and then when we then consume consume them in like TV or film I guess yeah that is changed or watered down I think um, you got to remember I guess in the early 2000s you got um, not just the Disney movies but it was the rise of DreamWorks and Shrek and I think mm. that kind of jive at fart jokes is very much probably Bill Willingham not necessarily being impressed by what things like Shrek did, you know, with these stories. Understandably. All this, what I was reading, was taken from an interview from the AV Club about five years after Fables was released. It was actually interesting to read about why he did this at first. I mean, he knew about these fairy tales, but he wasn't really a fan of them as such. And it was only watching something called Bullwinkle, which had something called Fractured Fairy Tale in it. And they did a tale about the Big Bad Wolf, and they sort of changed it. And he was quite outraged as a young boy. <laughs> so he asked his mum, you know, like, why would they do it? How can they do this? And she basically said it's like folklore and they belong to the folk, they belong to the people. And that got him thinking about using these characters in the future. And it was quite interesting how he um, had the idea and he does say that he only uses the characters that don't have any copyright on them, but he wanted to use Peter Pan as um, the adversary. He thought it was quite interesting to use Peter Pan because he thought Peter Pan was the evil one. He's the one who steals kids and Captain Hook is the one who's trying to rescue them. But <laughs> the problem was, it was non-copyright in America, but in the UK, because it belongs to the Great Ormond Street, and Parliament in the UK had um, extended copyright so that Great Ormond Street could get the rights and the profits from Peter Pan. They decided not to use it. So it was just little things like that. Willingham wrote a short introductory piece at the end of issue number one where he detailed, going on from what Andy said, a little bit of why he wrote the books. Um, he has a penchant for sneaking in old fable characters in his previous working comments and he wanted to find a a way to write more specifically about these characters and stories which he grew up with and which prompted fascination and queries in his mind. For example, Willingham always wondered whether the big bad wolf who tried to eat the three pigs was the same character who ate the Red Riding Hood's granny. If so, why didn't he use his huff and puff powers against the axe-wielding woodsman? He also he also pondered, was it the same Prince Charming who married Snow White, Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty? They all seemed identical from one story to the next. <laughs> like a complete sleep bag um, he found himself still pondering these questions and possibilities and this is how William decided with fables he could revisit these tales he was so fond of as a child and answer some of these questions for himself we talked about Shrek because it was quite it was quite funny you know like these um, normal creators are always so positive about their work and everything well, he didn't really want to give it to um, DC as such. He didn't, he didn't think it was strong enough as an idea to pitch to him. Um, he met, he went, was, was in the meeting with one of the editors and she says, no, 
you're going to pitch it to me. So he pitched it. DC, who owned Vertigo, really liked it. But then he pitched it two days before Shrek came out and all the ads came out for Shrek and he just saw Shrek and all his ideas were just taken. He was just like, oh. So he was always thinking that DC weren't going to go for it. But it's actually funny because the outgoing publisher, Jeanette Kahn, was, um, said it was a good movie property. So it saw the potential in it. And DC said to him, don't be a pussy. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> God, that, that sounds like Batman talking. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't confident in it at the start because of Shrek, but DC were more confident in it than him. But yeah, that yeah. was just a little antidote. You're little, right, actually, because uh, I, I can recall he said, oh, who would want to hear more stories about these familiar characters? And I think he said, my publishers at Vertigo did and they convinced me that the readers would so that's that's why I mm. did it yeah so I mean it obviously had a good run possibly longer than he originally thought and I think a bit later we might talk about the sort of aborted um, possibilities of fables moving into other media that, that sadly haven't happened in mm. small screen or theatrical uh, film releases as yet So we're going to talk about Fables Volume 1, which is titled Legends in Exile. And this is the introduction to Fable Town. Sheriff Bigby Wolf investigates the apparent murder of Rose Red. Uh, now, the, the, the issues themselves came out in 2002, and then a trade paperback collection of all five was published in 2003. And then I believe a deluxe edition in 2009 came out that featured the first 10 issues. Um, the Legends in Exile... Arc, as well as the second arc, which is told Animal Farm, and Mark, you're lucky enough to uh, to have that. Because I know the rest of us, we've been reading digital uh, copies of the of the individual issues, whereas you've actually got in your hands a beloved, uh, fancy, prestigious deluxe edition. Yeah, it's just like a it's a nice hardback um, compilation of of the first ten issues of the first two story arcs, like you said, um, Legends in Exile, and then Animal Farm. Uh, with a few extra little bits like a forward from Bill Willingham and then some uh, some extra artwork and, and bits and pieces at, at the back of it. Um, I picked it up the evening that I finished playing through uh, Wolf Among Us. I was so taken with the story, I went on Amazon and, and had a look and see to see if I could find it. I, I managed to pick it up for, I think it was like somewhere to £12-£15. And I just had another look on Amazon to see how much they are now and it's like £26 uh, per deluxe edition so if i wanted all of them that would be a lot of money so at the moment that's probably going to be the only one i get but um that i think that the wolf we will get on to possibly some more about that later on but i think i'm right in speaking that we've all come to this off the back of wolf among us is that right mm-hmm Yep, I'd never yep. even heard of it beforehand. Yeah, so no one had read Fables before playing the game. Yeah, so it's brilliant that the game can have that effect, that it's, it's you know, that it's inspired us all to go and pick the comics up. And that, that's exactly what happened to me when I first played through Wolf Among Us a couple of years back. I went straight out and read some of the comics, and uh, it's been a pleasure, you know, to come back to not only the game, but also reading the comics uh, recently for this show. The credits for Volume 1 are, of course, created and written by Bill Willingham, edited by Shelley Bond and Maria Huna. Uh, the, was, the issues were pencilled and drawn by Lan Medina, inked by Steve Laola, and Craig Hamilton stepped in for one issue, lettered by Todd Klein, coloured by Sherilyn Van Valkenberg, which is just a fantastic name, um, <laughs> and the panels were separated by Zelenor, and the cover art was by James Jean 
uh, with occasional help from Alex Maylive. As we've kind of already said, obviously other artists came on board um, and you know t- took up the mantle. But this is for the first issue that we're going to be talking of today. They are the you know the creatives that are worth crediting. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can turn to Andy, then do you want to introduce the first issue for us, and we'll you know say a few things about the artwork and then get onto the synopsis. So, issue one, um, Old Tales Revisited, published in July 2002. This one out of the first five seems to have very different artwork. It seems to be more reminiscent of the interior artwork rather than a different artist coming in and doing it. What we have is a more darker um, black and blue. Um, We've got New York in the background. We have Snow White. I believe with a hand around in almost like a hold on the chest. We've got Bigby Wolf in the background, lighting up one of his huffs and puffs. <laughs> we have um, the wolf once again, Bigby in his wolf form with red eyes, you know, suggesting menace. And we've got um, Buffkin at the front with an apple. And interestingly enough, he doesn't really get much of a speaking part in these. No. I don't think he speaks at all, does he? He shows up in a couple of panels. Towards the end, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we'll come to it. He's in a bit later on, uh, about halfway through the story, but only for a couple of panels. It's quite striking. You know, it is quite dark. You know, Vertigo was the DC imprint for mature readers. It suggests that this is mature. It's gritty. looks gritty. I believe this one must be by... AM. No, they all the all of the covers are by that James Jean. It's just that on the on a couple of them, Alex Malieve helped him out. But I think it's like you're saying. It's obviously the first. I mean, again, somebody who maybe read this from the beginning will be able to pick out um, why the art style is so different for this particular issue that we're reading. But I think it goes along with what you were saying, Andy. That kind of Vertigo were seen as like a, a publisher of more sort of adult themed subversive comics, and I think the cover just seems to be more in keeping with some of the artwork that was prevalent at the time. Whereas I think as you go on, the covers seem to be much more kind of aesthetically stylized in a particular way that they would obviously carry on. Yeah. So the synopsis, and it's quite interesting one because in comics, you always get a little um, title. And in this one, underneath the chapter one and called... Tales Revisited and it goes in which we meet many of our principal players and get just the first hint or two of some of the myriad troubles to come it's almost like the voiceover like a storyteller yeah yeah, yeah like a storyteller led by Snow White a reformed Bigby Wolf and a slew of others the secret community of Fable Town is adjusting to life among the mundanes in contemporary Manhattan but this is no fairy tale, and when Snow White's estranged sister, Rose Red, goes missing, her apartment, a Buddhist crime scene, it's up to Snow and Mr. Wolf to find the culprit. I mean, it's taken a long time to adjust, haven't they? Because if you think about it, I was listening to our previous episode, it's like 400 years of being in this world. The, the time frame is um, confusing. Uh, yeah. So, from what I read <laughs> in the wiki, um, <laughs> in some point in the 1600s, the adversary... Um, started his attack across uh, the, 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 the the fable the homelands uh, and started to drive the fables away they started retreating into other fables lands in the homelands and then eventually the survivors escaped to um, the mundane world and set up shop uh, in an area north of what was New Amsterdam at the time some point in the 1600s and then there's a period of I don't know what happened 
they they mention a point that must have happened about a hundred years or so after that where they had like a general amnesty where all of the characters misdeeds from the homeland were forgiven <laughs> and they started they started over again but it's a bit I, I mean I'm sure it gets explained a little clearer later the more you read but the timeline is a little bit confusing I if they just squabbled about everything from all that time they were just arguing about who did yeah, what for like a hundred years or so before they decided to actually yeah. settle down <laughs> and I think yeah. also the, um, definitely from my experience again from the game The Wolf Among Us to the comics is also that I think um, not knowing about necessarily fables in any detail before that I expected there to be a much tighter continuity like I thought I was to be going from the end of the game into like the first comic and it was going to somehow have very distinct overlap like for example like I said on that playlist episode that we might find out the answer to the riddle of the ending of that game series whereas of course that isn't the case it's not they haven't made it like a direct prequel so there are some elements I mean I think overall the the game it makes me reflect on the game very positively and thinks and it makes me think wow they did an amazing job Mm. of kind of taking the source material and putting it into a different media but there are just some areas that it it makes it more vague like you're saying particularly the timeline because I think Mm. Bigby Wolf in this comic series at some point says oh I've been a detective for 200 years that doesn't necessarily tally up with like we were saying a minute ago they'd been there since the 1600s but again it could simply be not knowing what goes on since then he mentions he's been a um, a detective since the amnesty so however long after the exile the amnesty started is unclear um on the point of the story from Wolf Among Us not following cleanly into this one I can only presume that's because Telltale originally planned for there to be more seasons of The Wolf Among Us whether or not yeah. there will be is up for debate but yeah they got to leave some breathing room in case they wanted to make a second season please make a second mm. season please make a second season <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I think that's you know from a what you're saying makes complete sense from a business perspective but also from not the, the creative ideas behind it but I think just like the fanboy suddenly in me was thinking oh, I just can't want more of this story like, yeah. so I'm going to go to the comics and it's all the mysteries and riddles at the end of that game series is going to be resolved for me so I think initially whilst being massively impressed and feeling very comfortable about being back in his character's um, company I, part of me did feel a slightly disappointed but I mean it's soon abated because you obviously fall straight into another one of these on what seems on first appearances another murder mystery so I was more than happy with that I suppose it's just like little things like um, clearly in the game series it makes you think possibly that Bluebeard might have a more kind of uh, pivotal role and I don't know somehow would with Snow White would be them working together or something and ruling the government whereas actually there's another character introduced King Cole who seems to have been the on you know the the forever mayor or something they refer to him as and snow white's his number two so she's kind of been promoted in the end of wolf among us and obviously stepped into crane shoes but actually she's always kind of working under somebody else in some way and king cole was never mentioned was he in the games yeah that's that's an area where it was a little bit confusing because in the comic books king cole was named um honorary mayor for life uh, after the exile but in The Wolf Among Us he's not the mayor and, and um, Ichabod Crane is so there's that's, I've, because I thought that The Wolf Among Us was supposed to be canon like a, yeah well it has been accepted as canon like obviously retrospectively yeah. but they've obviously um, they've 
gone back and changed that aspect at least. Who was Kramer the deputy mayor though? It was because Snow White's the deputy mayor. Yeah, but she becomes a deputy. Well, I don't know. Yeah, or well, he, she's his assistant. I know what you're saying. I mean, there may have been a hierarchy, but I'm just saying, like, on first impression, going to the comic, there was just a couple of things that, that didn't quite gel. Um, mm. But, I mean, credit to the story itself that, you know, I, I was caught up enough in the mystery here to be... I mean, I still always am going to have in the back of my mind Faith and uh, Narissa and what's happened there. And like Mark says, I want a second season of The Wolf Among Us. But no, I, I soon got to grips with this and, and I did enjoy it, I must admit. Hmm. He is a deputy mayor. I just checked on Wiki. Yeah, I just looked it up as well. Yeah. Oh, Ichabod Crane is deputy mayor. Yeah. Okay, that yeah. fits, that fits. So uh, presumably King Cole was on holiday during the, the, <laughs> what happened in The Wolf Among Us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I found it jarring a bit. But we're coming in from a different angle because we think about it. This is 150 issues um, have been published of this comic plus, and most people would go from the comics to the game. I agreed. Yeah, I think you're right. We're, we're coming from the game to the comics, which is slightly different. You know, and the comics is a, set as a prequel, not a sequel, and they sort of almost have to retrofit things into. You know, the can't go against canon. What's what's going to happen in the future? You know, it's already been set in stone. What's happening in the comics? So they're having to retrofit. That's why I think there's, but um, there's a number of characters, isn't there, that aren't in the comics, mm. or at least haven't been so far. And I think that's kind of why, because to go with their own, to give them some agency over what they were doing and not be affected by the comics. Yeah, they kind of had to make their own characters. So, um, quick spoilers for the Wolf Among Us. If you're listening to this but haven't played that game, don't listen for the next thirty seconds or so. Um, the Crooked Man isn't in the comics at all. He's only in The Wolf Among Us. So the end that he meets in The Wolf Among Us is a definitive end because he doesn't show up mm. in the comic books. So I just checked the wiki here. The only reference to him is in The Wolf Among Us. But there is that 16-part comic, isn't it? The 16-issue comic series of Wolf Among Us mm. where we go into it a bit more deeper. So that might be worth a read. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that uh, in a way, part of me feels, is that the only way I'm going to get any more of the Wolf Among Us like if it, if it is not gonna, if, it, if it's not to go on perhaps that's why I have to invest in that but um, yeah I mean I don't think any of us are doing Fables a disservice we're just like orientating ourselves like Andy said in a kind of almost backwards fashion into this long running series and um I, I think you know overall by the time I got to the end of the issue I couldn't wait to you know start the next one it's um, it, it's very much kind of in keeping with the idea of um, these familiar characters, the knowledge of their backstories gives you such a great inroad to their, their kind of interactions already without having to be written down on a page because obviously a comic has to be very economical with its actual actual text that it used. Um, but there was still that kind of um, very, I guess, kind of adult humour <laughs> present from, from the beginning and also just, the, just seeing these characters in, in a completely different light um, and sort of subverting our expectations of not, I did. I found that greatly enjoyable. Uh, just a quick note. Um, did anyone else read the characters in the comic book with the voices that they had in The Wolf Among Us? <laughs> or was no, that just me? Completely. <laughs> no. Big B. That's about it, probably. Well, he has a very, very distinctive voice in um, The yeah. Wolf Among Us. And it kind of carries on, doesn't it? Like the, I think we said in terms of the game that possibly Beauty and Beast, they didn't really get given a lot to do. There wasn't a great deal of depth to... You know, for them to do in that that particular arc, whereas again here, although we only see them f- fleetingly, it's just them still arguing about having to 
been married for so many years. Yeah, yeah. We should probably come on to um, some of the little bits that actually happen in the the episode because that's quite early on, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. quite like the start of it though. In a fictional land called New York City. <laughs> Once again, it starts off with a bit of humour, you know. And there, there's the, the first of a sort of running joke that runs all the way through the series of... Uh, the fables sort of mistreating taxi drivers um, <laughs> spilling drinks in the back of their cabs mm. not giving them enough money for the cab fare and things like that <laughs> and big beast insistence on smoking in the back of taxis first of all i mean straight away when we come into we were introduced to jack who, you know was racing towards woodlands because we're already familiar with it through the game and um, we see Flycatcher and we sort of know how we got that job. Yeah, I yeah. love those little bits. And we mm. got to meet, um, you know, the sleeping security guard again. And he actually gets a name, which I've completely yeah. forgot. Mm. Is it Grumble? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, but he's, it's mm. brilliant how he's, you know, how they've captured the essence of him. <laughs> mm. The sleeping, you know, night watchman brilliantly. And they get the look of when he, when he gets into to Bigby's office, it looked exactly the same as it did in uh, in the game as well just like a horrible cramped dusty office with a a, a crammed ashtray and a dirty coffee machine yeah. on the side and yeah. newspaper cuttings and things stuck all over the notice board <laughs> behind him and you almost you see almost straight from the off again how there's this sort of a clunky gear change because obviously at the end of the wolf among us we think that snow white is going to try and solve some of the inequality of fable town and straight away you, we've got the same kind of problems arising that Beauty and Beast can't afford to stay in glamours or something, you know, Beast is turning back into the Beast and they're worried that he's going to reveal, you know, the, you know, their true magical natures to the human world and that, mm. you know, they can't, and Snow saying that we can't let that happen, but she's not going to give them any money or kind of support, which is kind of what was the catalyst of what happened in The Wolf Among Us. So it's like, you know, they've still got those same age old problems it's almost like a bit of a um, Bill's sort of political view you know because unlike the Mondays this is what they call the um, humans the fable government isn't going to get involved in the, you know the nitty gritty of people's lives they're just going to leave people to solve it themselves yes yeah. yeah. but I did find it really hilarious that the reasons why he's turning back to a beast is because is it Bella? Or, I don't know. Is, it, is that a Disney thing? But Beauty is pissed off at him, so she's not happy in the marriage. Yeah, because she, because she's not happy, he keeps turning into a beast, which makes her even more unhappier. Which makes him turn into a beast even more. And there's that hilarious line with Snow White can't understand what he says. And yeah. He's saying about it's this, he says it's this transitional period that's the problem. My fangs have grown, but my mouth hasn't grown big enough to fit them yet. So I speak funny. <laughs> <laughs> and then a Beauty dares to bring up some kind of like sordid rumour about um, Snow's oh, sexual yeah. exploits for the dwarves <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I was wondering about that but I'm sure if you look on the internet you'll be able to find a picture of it mm. <laughs> <laughs> I left it all to my imagination it was very vivid it was a very vivid picture it was too <laughs> and um, we. this is also where we get kind of like comment towards um, that Prince Charming is Snow's ex-husband and that he's back in town and uh, there's just some amazing lines isn't there from him in this I think it is this first issue isn't it where he kind of uh, picks up he's in that restaurant yeah yeah he picks up a waitress yeah he picks up like Molly that's it and he talks about how you know he gives out good life lessons like a nobleman should uh, master his swordsmanship and his coxmanship or something like that yeah <laughs> 
He's it, it, right from the off. He's just like the worst type of sleaze bag. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but written so well. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Like exactly how you would imagine a Prince Charming character would be like yeah. in like contemporary uh, culture. Yeah, makes the waitress pick up his the check for his dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> shit like that. It's just like and there's there's like a um, ongoing. Uh, references to the fact that he's been off in Europe and he's exhausted his welcome with with all the royalty of, of Europe just by being a like a complete sleaze bag and a, and a bit of a uh, well just sponging off people basically and so now he's come crawling back to New York I mean one thing about the artwork you know we look at um, Beauty and Snow White I mean the drawn so seductively and so you know curvy you know the way I mean Lan Medina it was the artist does it really well there is obviously that kind of um, I don't really I I was going to say that kind of almost typical uh, leeriness to some comic books but I I, I don't want to like tar the whole art with that with that brush but it is something that I've come across it Mm. almost like you know you get certain anime and um, almost and Japanese video game art I'm thinking of Atlas and some of their character designs it, it does seem to be kind of like a trend i mean it is they mm. are very sexualized they mm. you know not only is it mature themed in its its plot lines but you know the the, the female characters and you know the men are obviously drawn with you know big big wolf off of his shirt and that but they, they're kind of like the sexual nature i guess is kind of overt in in the stylization yeah i mean was, was that off-putting to you then did you find it no too crude or no no i don't mind it but what i think it's really noticeable at the beginning of a comic of the first issue mm-hmm. as it as the comic goes on it's not really there i mean when you look at the waitress himself herself talking to prince charming she's Drawn in a way as a you know as a bit of a waitress you know with short dress and everything, but later on she's got a coat, she's got a jacket. You know, it's, it doesn't continue throughout. It's on Snow White herself changes. She's not always got the long hair. She's not drawn in such a sexual way. She changes as you know as as a role change. So she's more business like later on. Hmm. So I don't really have an issue with it. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a perennial that goes through. I mean, if we're talking just specifically about DC, I can remember when they launched the new 52 and um, some of the uproar that was caused by their kind of like stylization of certain characters in that, you know, I'm thinking about Catwoman in particular. It was just so overtly sexualized, you know, it was untrue. But again, the fraud kind of dies down. You get different artists um, of both genders coming on to work on you know, the new 52, just to use that as an example, when it, it seems to kind of, I don't know, it becomes more palatable over time. I mean, I don't, I'm not in a position to talk about whether the representation of, of women in, in comics is, is right or wrong. I'm, I'm just aware that, of course, there is that element to it and sometimes it can be more prevalent uh, to the detriment of the art. But I, 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 I didn't personally find it to be um, too extreme for me, I mean, I think I just got caught up, like you were saying, about the in the humorous element, and I think sometimes because it's got that dose of humor in it, it, it makes it more. I don't know. It's not. I don't want to say acceptable because I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> but you know, I, 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 it wasn't like a stumbling block for me. I guess you know. I thought right. You know, he's obviously trying to make a clear distinction mm-hmm. between this and what he termed in a rather derogative way, kids animated movies. You know, this very much isn't for kids. So I was kind of willing to. Yeah, get on board with that. Yeah, it's just, it's, for better or for worse, it's a way that women have been drawn in comic books for 
pretty much the entire history of comic books. Yeah, and probably on caves. Especially the more adult ones. <laughs> you know, probably on caves. Ever since man could draw, I'm sure. Yes. Those depictions. <laughs> yeah. One thing I noticed was that the relationship between Snow and Big Biz is different. If you remember at the end of Wolf, they're getting quite pally, quite close. Here, she calls him Mr. Wolf. We're quite adversary, you know, quite formal. You know, this- yes, she's quite strict. I mean, she, there were moments in Wolf where I felt she was very stringent towards uh, Big B, and yeah. I, I think mm. it seems to be, yeah, almost like again, because we've come to it back to front, it's almost like they've fallen back into that. You know, we just business associates don't, you know, think it's going to be anything more. But again, that you get the impression that's going to be like one of these. Mulder and Scully scenarios throughout the whole of Fables I don't know because I've mm. not read on to the end yeah maybe almost like it's serialised kind of so they kind of always reset to point at like a counterpoint at the beginning mm. sort of their relationship yeah. of each volume perhaps I don't know I mean I think she's got fair um, reason possibly to as the this story out goes on to be quite displeased with him because he obviously doesn't have the level of trust for her that we thought he was attaining at the end of Wolf because he doesn't really clue her into a lot of his thinking I mean I suppose we should get to the point the main kind of crux of this first issue and that's the disappearance of Rose Red who I must confess it's just not clicking for me who's Rose Red in terms of what's her origin in terms of like fairy tales well isn't she supposed to be as well as a few other characters, Red Riding Hood. That's oh, why right. Sorry. Right. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I'm being dense then. I was because I was picturing a lot of them, or I, I noticed some other characters that were just drawn in the background and they didn't even necessarily have a speaking role. And I could kind of picture some of them, you know, like from the Emerald City, Wizard of Oz, and things like that. The Tin Man, I think, isn't one of them. But I could, just for some reason, I thought, oh, have they created this character? You know, like Adam was saying, they created some original characters in a way for Wolf. I just wasn't sure whether this was just a character that Willingham had created, but now that you've explained it, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've noticed it, but on, um, you know, we're talking about the glamour, you know, it was, it was one of the, it was a sticking point with Beauty and the Beast and all that was. But on page, if you're on page six, one of the panels of a comic, you see um, Bigby talking to Snow as they're going to the apartment of Rose Red. And the shadow the artist has done, and now I don't know, it could be interpreted in many ways, that the shadow that Bigby is producing on the wall is the shadow of a wolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. I thought that was yeah. a good touch. Yeah, like as in, you know, that's still, it's a glamour, but it's obviously still the wolf like underneath. And, and just as a bit of visual artwork, I really like the aesthetic choice that they yeah. made there. It's almost like, um, you know, when you see certain monsters in old kind of movies, like you see their silhouette across yeah. a staircase or something. I, I just, you know, like German expressionism, I think it's really effective. Yeah, I did like that. It would suggest that the glamours don't really cover the shadows. I don't know, but I did like it. It was really effective. I think it was just a stylistic choice. I don't think it's supposed to be something that, say, the Mondays would ever see. It's just a little hint as to... Uh, yeah as to who he mm. is because it, it, I mean I don't think there's any reference to who he was but at this point he's just Bigby and yeah. you, you're still at this point if you don't, don't know anything about the story you're still trying to work out who how he ties in like all the other characters are fairly straightforward you know who Snow White is Rose Red maybe not quite so much um, you know who Jack, Jack is stalk, yeah. you, know, you know who Jack Horner is you know who Beauty and the Beast are um, the Flycatcher I still don't know who mm. they're supposed to be 
I guess there is a reference beforehand because when Jack runs in, he does say "blown down any piggies." <laughs> <things like that. laughs> of course, yes, he does. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. There is, a, there is a few little hints, I guess, maybe not as quite as explicit as some of the others, mm. but so yeah, because yeah, they yeah, trade barbs, that. don't they? And there's this ongoing yeah. th- line throughout the the, the 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 series about how Jack is. A scam artist, basically tying <laughs> yeah, into the whole like how the beans were never real. Yeah, the magic bean thing. Um, yeah, he's just portrayed as a bit of a, a bit of a, a scam artist, a bit of a, a bit of a Swiss Tony. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, of course, he's there to say to Bigby that um, his girlfriend Rose Red has disappeared, and then Bigby goes along to the crime scene, and, and again, as kind of echo of the game, Snow White sort of says she's coming with him, and you know that's where they discover this kind of like bloody mess uh, like an episode of Dexter or something like that and uh, we're wondering wow what's happened here (laughs) yeah just a a trash department with blood everywhere and no more happily ever after written in in blood on the wall it's quite a gruesome Mm. scene it doesn't right from the off I thought there was something a little bit odd about this it doesn't look like a murder scene well unless someone had been chopped into little pieces or if they spontaneously combusted yes yeah (laughs) (laughs) so uh, that kind of brings this issue to a close doesn't it with um Bigby does take Jack into custody doesn't he because he kind of surveys the scene and then uh, you know that's where you know we're, we're kind of ended I mean again I thought it was an effective cliffhanger, not quite as punchy and as shocking, of course, as we got in the early episodes of the game. But no, it's certainly, you know, although we've kind of laboured possibly talking about the first issue, it was it's very short, kind of punchy. And, you know, they're only about, what, 25 pages yeah. long, something like yeah. that? Yeah, 26, I've got, yeah. I've got, I do have one other thing about that crime scene. Did anybody, not to, I know we're going to get to the last episode uh, issue eventually, did anyone notice the things that Bigby noticed? So when you go back and look through it, it's pretty obvious yeah. looking at the panels. Whereas initially looking, it just looks like yeah. he's just milling around. Yeah, it, it just looks like he's investigating yeah. it. But then, yeah, yeah, later, we'll you don't pick up on, on it well, yourself. No, yeah. no, it's it's yeah. I had to go back mm. and have a look at those panels later on as well once you realise what's what's happened. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I love yeah. that device when they can do that. I mean, there's a really yeah. obvious one that comes to my mind if anyone's into... I mean, I know you possibly you're not, but any listeners that are into their art Italian genre films, there's a, an Argento film called Deep Red. And then what happens is the, the kind of would-be amateur sleuth goes to... Um, the house of somebody and he passes like this corridor and it's full of uh, paintings and anyway it ends up being that unbeknownst to you because you don't pick up on it first time around he actually sees the face of the killer in a mirror because it's framed like in an oval shape the same as this artwork you just take it to be a painting so it's one of those things again where you go back and then you know what you're looking for you can see it very obviously but Mm. it's just so deftly done and I think Adam's completely right I didn't pick up on it at all like first reading through the comic Mm. it's really well done the way that they you know they've kind of um, instigated that And and even though some of the explanations towards the end which we'll get to stretch credibility somewhat it, it ties together like in a satisfying way yeah So we did get some community comments, and this is from at Lane It, which is, of course, our good friend Nick. Is it at Lane It 360 on Twitter? Yeah. 
Yeah. He's written, I didn't know The Wolf Among Us was a prequel to The Fables comics. I thought it took place during the series. So starting the first issue and finding that out was pretty cool. I could have done without the dragged out bit with Beauty and Beast, though the warning Boy Blue gives about not mentioning the dwarves made me chuckle. <laughs> Again, is Boy Blue one that people know? Or am I just showing my ignorance of fairy tales? It's Little Boy Blue. is a nursery rhyme or something? Oh, okay. Mm. Um, Nick goes on to say I quite like Prince Charming even if he is a pretentious dirtbag his witty banter amuses me I'm a bit of a child (laughs) (laughs) he's not alone there I thought some of his lines were fantastic Um, I really like the panel where Bigby is headed upstairs talking snow and the shadow on the wall is his wolf form which of course Andy alerted us to and uh, he finalises his comments on the first issue with the investigation into the bloodbath in Rose Red's apartment without any dialogue and just Bigby checking everything out and having that aha moment was really well done. I just wanted to know what Jack did. Makes me glad I read the story in the trade paperback instead of reading month to month. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing I guess we've taken for granted. I, I would have found it. Yeah. I mean, it could actually oh, be yeah. one of the reasons why I don't read comics. Because um, when I grew up, I remember comics being weekly or unless that was just how I was fortunate enough to buy them you know maybe mm. they'd already been released and I managed to get them weekly with pocket money or whatever but I can't imagine now I mean you always go to the collected volumes don't you you never yeah. you never read it no. month by month as it's actually happening I think that would be a really difficult thing because they're so short I don't know for some reason because yeah. they're less visual in a sense than TV I don't know whether I'd be able to retain it, but I guess you'd always read. What probably happens is you'd go back and reread the previous issue with the new one. So, but yeah, no, I'm really pleased. Like as Nick says, that I've, we've just got them there in front of us, and you can just steam through it. Mm. Yeah, because you mentioned the new Fifty Two before, so I used that as a jumping on point to try and jump into DC, and I ended up giving up because I was like, "This is boring." <laughs> waiting every month for a new issue to come, out. I just couldn't do it. It's not how I like. It's not how we consume things now, is it? No, no. Netflix and stuff. They wanted you with the new Fifty Two to almost read every issue, like so. They almost wanted yeah, you to be buying. Fi- yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, of course, sure. they realised people would fall off certain. Um, lines but the i think their idea was they would again as in we've become so yeah yeah, or we've got so used to that storytelling that echoes and bleeds through to other comics you know of course just looking at the marvel cinematic universe you know obviously that's been around characters going into one another's storylines has been happening in comics for decades but Mm. in the new 52 they almost try to inbuilt it into the narratives that you'd have to be reading concurrently about eight different comics you know it's just it was just ridiculous. It's too much, yeah. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Big bad wolf, big bad wolf. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? La 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 la. Moving on to issue two, Unusual Suspects, which was first published in August 2002. This is the, the first issue where the cover art um, changes, and it, this is where it, it stays in this style for the rest, at least for the rest of this storyline, where it's more of like a, a really quite beautiful painted style. Um, on this particular cover, it's um, Cinderella um, holding the glass, one of the glass slippers, and she's being embraced by uh, Bluebeard, and they're both holding a couple of um, rapiers, like you would use for fencing. And then down below, you can see yet again the back end of, of just tucked <laughs> in the corner, the back end of Colin the pig. And then I'm not sure what that, who that green fella's supposed to be, a sort of like troll goblin sort of thing wearing a tuxedo. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah obviously the troll who lives under the bridge mm. of something. <laughs> yeah, maybe, but he, he's got all dolled up for some occasion. One thing to point out is from the next four covers, Colin the Pig features in every single cover in some form of a... Yeah, he keeps popping up mm. all the way through, not only in the covers, but yeah. all the way through the comic book. He doesn't have... I mean, he, he's going to... You know, he has actually some dialogue at the beginning of this uh, this issue, but on the whole, he doesn't show up. It doesn't have a lot to do with the storyline, but he keeps popping up from time to time, usually asleep um, or trying to steal some food or quite possibly drunk um, or trying to bum cigarettes. Because we kept seeing him, I thought, oh, and there was a certain point where we, we realised that Bigby knows a lot more than we do as the reader. I thought, oh, is, is he used Colin as like... Um like his informant or like an investigator. Is it Colin that's going to find out things for him? But sadly, yeah, that, that never seemed to be the case. But, I mean, obviously this open interaction between Bigby and Colin, and clearly mm. that's where they've just expanded that out for Wolf Among Us. Yeah. yeah. You know, just on this one little sort of mm. conversation almost. It is the next day uh, from the end of the last episode. And uh, yes, chapter two, The Unusual Suspects, in which our intrepid detective delves deeper into the mystery of the missing fable and a prince is reunited with his old lady love. Um, so as, as we were saying, it opens with um, the, the, the Woodlands um, apartment complex, the, the secret city hall, the underground community uh, of the fables. Um, and the flycatcher is doing his thing cleaning the corridor I still don't know who what he's from does anyone know what fable the flycatcher is from is he any idea send it in listeners no. yeah if anyone's got any idea without <laughs> looking it up no, no. no clue but um, yeah there's a brief reintroduction of him as, as um, he has a rather terse conversation with Snow White as she's walking into the apartment but then yeah we get this this brilliant interaction very similar to the one that was in um, The Wolf Among Us between Bigby and Colin, the last remaining... Is he, is he the last remaining pig from the three-pig story? I think it's mentioned uh, in The Wolf Among Us. I don't know if it is here. He's certainly the one that seems to constantly escape, doesn't he, from Ooh, the farm yes. anyway? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think it is mentioned when they go to the old lady. Don't you see the others being killed as part of the... Oh, back in the yeah, the flashbacks with the adversary, possibly, yeah. yeah. Breakfast, what you're having? Ham and eggs. <laughs> yeah. And he just says, what is he? he says, you haven't changed yeah. one bit. I take it all back. <laughs> I take it all back. You're still a monster through and through. Yeah, they're very similar characters. They're both kind of, well, they're old adversaries, but they've got a begrudging respect for each other. Um, and Bigby, I think, feels a little bit uh, responsible for, um, for Colin. They're both rude they both chain smoke <laughs> um yeah i mean they act as like a microcosm for what has happened to all of the fables because they're all kind of either they were strangers or they were kind of like having these grudges against one another but they've had to all come together and just uh, coexist haven't they because of the fact they've all been they're all exiled they've all lost their their riches and their their status in the homeland so the fact that big b and you know colin were adversaries now that they've they've become kinsmen in a way, you know. So mm. they've had to put that aside, and I think it's their kind of begrudging friendship that I guess, in a way, is what epitomises what they're hoping is can happen. I mean, they they slag each other off, and they. 
they're not exactly overtly kind to one another, but you get a sense that there's a solidarity there before, whereas, mm. yeah, of course, they were like mortal enemies. So, in a way, that is kind of like what Fable Town is about. Just to sum up this episode, um, Bigby Wolf, Fable Town's one man uh, police force, interrogates some shady suspects for Rose Red's uh, probable murder. Snow White reveals the salacious act that destroyed not only her marriage but her relationship with her sister, and penniless philanderer Prince Charming decides to sell his royal title over the internet mm-hmm. philanderer is the perfect <laughs> word to describe prince charming as well <laughs> so uh, yeah this is kind of like what you were saying you get a mention about the general amnesty and that's you know just an interesting idea where they drew a line in the sand and we can't that you know you can't bring up sort of past evils although they do still like to do that at every opportunity because <laughs> i think you know even um or was it somebody calls Jack a, a giant killer? And obviously Bigby's always being reminded of like, what he's done in the past. Mm. I mean, we see Charming next. We'll see just been with Molly. And he leaves that note behind. And you read that note, you think, what a bastard. Oh, that note is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Prince Charming sneaks out of the apartment of the, the waitress he picked up in the previous issue and leaves a note in the door that says, Sweet Molly, while you slept, I dashed out to retrieve my luggage from the Port Authority baggage check. I dropped off a couple of suits with the dry cleaners downstairs. Be a dear and pick them up for me this afternoon before you go to work. Also, if you have a moment, can you do a load of laundry for me just a few items in my suitcase make sure to carefully follow the washing instructions on the labels i helped myself to your spare apartment key and some money from your purse i didn't want to wake you to ask you and knew you wouldn't mind i'll be camping here with you for a few days if it doesn't put you out too much see you tonight your handsome prince <laughs> du jour <laughs> this sort of utter bastard you're incredulous over that your your female friends like yeah yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah he goes off doesn't he then to meet Snow White obviously we we realise that they're uh, divorcees is that the right word and uh, this is at the, the Eggman Cafe and uh, yeah this is where he comes up with this plan that he wants to sell his his title and his deeds even though they're not really of any practical use because they can't be you know like if whoever he sells them to can't go and then take up a bode as a prince in the old homelands because obviously it's been held as part of the adversary's dominion but it's, it's, it was an interesting kind of reference to the whole internet boom and the kind of dot-com uh, investment bubble i guess yeah there's a few um there's a few points that allude to, to that as well um it just i kind of just highlights the sort of desperation of uh of these characters to try and try and hang on to some semblance of the the grandiose lifestyle that they had back in the homeland like prince charming was you know he has a, a title and land back in in the homeland but he he doesn't have it anymore so now he just uses his charm to scrounge off the mundies um i just wanted to mention a, another another point in that that scene with um I don't know if anyone has uh, noticed it. I've just, I've only just noticed it myself for the first time with um, Snow White and Prince Charming. When they're sat in the cafe, a lorry goes past and in the back of the lorry is Colin again. (laughs) (laughs) You see it, you see him in the back of it. And then as it's going past, you see the point, uh, you see from inside and you're looking out through the window and he's there again, just looking at them. (laughs) So yeah, I'm I'm beginning to wonder uh, whether Bigby was using him as a sort of, spy all the way through to keep him up to date with what was going on with the other fables yeah that's that's i'd like to think so <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> how how that plan would ever work sending a pig through downtown Manhattan to do your spying for you I don't know <laughs> but it's almost going to take a piss take out of a glamour you know the glamour's meant to hide him and here he is out in the open constantly mm. you know following people yeah. you know back of trucks talking to people so at one point he does talk to some wonders so uh, was it like the other kind of elements that come to light in this episode uh, this issue sorry I should say is that they're obviously in Bigby and Snow are interrogating Jack um, again in a kind of reminiscent scenario from the game and he's you know testing his innocence and that he's got nothing to do with it and um, then we do get introduced to Bluebeard don't we and he's kind of like sparring with Cinderella and there's some uh, some great kind of um, verbal back and forth as well whilst they're jousting and um, was it Cinderella <laughs> says please don't keep referring to me as princess the way that you say it you know is, is synonymous with turd sandwich <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was a great little scene. There's, there's, um, it doesn't really reveal too much of the story. I think this is the only time that Cinderella shows up in, in yeah. at least this first story. Yeah, it's I think it's scene. to reinforce the idea that Prince Charming obviously jumped from bed to bed. Because I think there is a reference that mm. um, Bluebeard says, oh, have you heard your ex-husband is in is in town? And she says something like, yeah, we already know that she's she, he's gone to beg off mm. wife number one. Mm. You know, yeah. as in being snow. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, interesting how disdainful um, Bluebeard is of royalty when it's revealed later on that he is probably the richest um, fable. Well, yeah, he's a self-made man, isn't yeah. he? So he obviously, yeah. he resents um, the aristocracy. You know, again, it's like these little elements of social commentary that, that kind of ring true. The aristocrat that's on hard times that tries to sponge off his title, whereas... Bluebeard's very much like about um, accumulating mm. wealth and then like pulling the ladder up so that no one else can kind of share in it. And his character actually did, you know, like before in um, when we talked about Wolf Among Us, I kind of said that Bluebeard was a bit of a grating character. I, I realise now they really did kind of capture his essence though because he's very much like that, I felt, mm. in, in this issue as well. Like a very kind of unlikable character. <laughs> <laughs> he does surround himself. he got his own castle. You know, he's the only one who pays off the um, magicians to put a castle into his apartment, like a TARDIS type of thing. Yeah, that was great, yeah. And yeah. obviously he gets away with a lot because he's the one who kind of donates the great amount of wealth to the, mm. the kind of government coffers, so King Cole doesn't want to upset him. Yeah, and they, they don't like bringing up his past too much in case they do upset him and he, he stops funding um, the Fable government. Hmm. Yeah, we know all those past discretions were forgiven in the amnesty, even, you know, killing of brides on the wedding night. Yeah. <laughs> There's a great panel, isn't there, somewhere where you see him and he's like bringing a new bride home and he's just got all of these rotting corpses out yeah, in wedding yeah. dresses. <laughs> yeah, have we mentioned why Snow White and Charming split up? No, go ahead, Andy. When Snow White, who um, La Medina has drawn more business like, because like I said from the start, the art. Uh, changes it doesn't draw as seductress and so in a sexual position type of way or sexual type of way um through this conversation with prince charming it's revealed why snow white actually split up from prince charming and it's because he slept with her sister rose red what a bastard um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no 
Who he blames? <laughs> Who do you dislike more, Lee? Prince Charming in this or Tweedledee and Tweedledum in The Wolf Among Us? <laughs> no, I think, I think as we've said, like Prince Charming, despite, you know, he lives up to his name. He is like a smarmy git, but he's yeah. funny. Like, so he has got an amazing audacity. Like, the, the, I mean, the, like, I think Adam was just, uh, Andy was just about to say, he blames Rose Red. Like, he's caught red-handed and he says... The mink seduced me. (laughs) (laughs) Like still, obviously, hundreds of years after the fact. (laughs) So no, I had I had more time for him just because he was one. He was more of those um, lovable bastard types. Whereas the the Tweedles, they didn't have any redeeming features. (laughs) I think the last point is just the confrontation between Big B and Snow White Mm. and Bluebeard in his castle. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. So they obviously go there and. Um, again, depending on which option you chose or how you approached playing as Big B in the game, you, if you were like very forceful and just you know aggressive, that's the kind of tact he adopts and accuses Bluebeard outright of um, Rose's murder. Whereupon he, Bluebeard, was it? He kind of reveals or a bit of paper or something that um, he's actually married to her, or is he betrothed to her? They are going to get married. That's it. Yeah, isn't it? he has yeah. a wedding yeah, contract. Fiance, um, yeah. He gave Rose Red um, a dowry up front. Uh, with an agreement that they would be married in a year as long as they kept it secret for a year and they'd announce it after the um, the next remembrance um, celebration. Yes, that's it. And that's another thing about what I was saying about Bluebeard being like this self-made man because he, you know, the way he talks is almost like um, outrage that he had to pay a dowry because whereas obviously in the olden days it would be the woman's family that would pay a dowry to like her prospective suitor. It's like the way that it's changed and the fact that he's having to lay out money to kind of secure her, um, you know, I think kind of rankles him somewhat. But yeah, he, but again, like anything else, he therefore then sees her almost like property. Although he does kind of say, oh, I'm outraged and I'll be avenged if like something's happened to her. But I almost get more of an impression that he's saying that because he feels like he's been done out of money. Mm. (laughs) One little thing I noticed in this, and it's, it's, it's just, something small um in one of the panels uh you can see in the background in bluebeard's office in front of a painting of a ship at sea is what appears to be captain hook's hook, oh, hook. in a little glass case yeah. Uh, yeah and i wonder whether he'd sort yeah. of like collected memorabilia from some of the fables who didn't make it back to the monday world well, that's what they're saying yeah almost like he got the spoils of war and that all some other fables that survived had to give him their possessions for him to then like um because i think it's alluded to that he did an underground railway kind of a deal you know like um uh during the slavery yeah. there was yeah, um, harriet tubman and people like that who helped the, the slaves flee america to go to places like canada which didn't have slavery they're they're kind of using that paradigm here that bluebeard helped the kind of surviving fables to leave um mm. the, the kind of terror reign of the adversary but of course he made them pay top dollar for the honor which obviously harriet tubman didn't <laughs> no <laughs> i just like the fact that throughout this issue there's not a real big um, reveal of the history, is it? You know, there's just a mention of the amnesty. You know, so it's just dropping little things. You know, why these? You know, there's an amnesty, but we're not going to reveal everything. It's just a gradual thing, that like, just to keep the reader interested. It's a, it's something that I I really appreciate in this because in too many um, comic books, and it's something that. Can, the writing in some comic books can come up being a little bit silly when characters will have 
lines or, or entire speeches of expository dialogue, which is stuff that the character that, you're, that they're speaking to would already know, and it's just for the benefit of the reader. It doesn't do that too much in this. So, so like you were saying, it, it, there's mentions, brief mentions of the adversary and the exodus and amnesty, and you just kind of piece it together as you go along, rather than a character explaining at length the entire history to another character who would already know it. Hey, we've had some further comments from Nick uh, on this uh, particular issue. He says, uh, Bigby and the pig's interaction was great. Uh, seeing uh, the pig throughout the issue in different places was funny to me. The tension mounted as the issue went on. What happened with Rose Red and Jack? Uh, what was the huge fight all about? Of course, Bluebeard is involved. A secret engagement and a million dollar reward. A side note, Prince Charming really is a scumbag. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Big bad wolf, big bad wolf, who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Ba la 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 la. Issue 3 is called Blood Tells and it was first published in September 2002. In terms of the cover art, it's a, again a little weird interpretation. Um, so we've got like a tea cloth at the top, I guess. And then what I can only assume is the Black Witch or Frau Totem, kind of, as she's also known. Pouring, pouring some very uh, pissy-coloured tea into a pot, which has been held by these weird, like there's like a collection, a rabble of monsters, I guess, and some hands holding a saucer, and then of course Colin the pig is just there in the middle of them all, <laughs> just looking up at her, probably wondering if he's got any food, if she's got any food for him. And the synopsis for this one, taken from the comic, is in which the boys make a big mess, more blood is spilled, and a determination is made about a missing fable. So a bit more information, as the mystery of Rose Red's murder unfolds, Bigby the Wolf grills the Black Forest Witch, who may have returned to her old eating habits. Snow White consults Fable Town's Mayor King Cole, and Jack receives two surprise visitors behind bars. So I guess is the are we to assume the witch is the witch from uh, Hansel and Gretel? Yeah, that's well, as in... I'm sure she's like the witch of other stories, but that's kind of what I, I took from it. Big B says, have you grown tired of the taste of gingerbread? So like her gingerbread house. Um, yeah, like her kind of appearance in this is... Um, like, don't they do like a kind of strange thing where they do a flashback and they fill in things that actually you've not read? Yeah. So that they kind of recover... What is it? So Snow's gone to talk to King Cole and he asks for like a blow-by-blow account of the investigation and she tells him and it does kind of recap things that we've already heard that she's interviewed. You know, she talks about how Wolf's interviewed Jack and Bluebeard but then also, you're right, the witch gets mentioned and um, I think there's also even a meeting between Big B and Prince Charming but we they weren't in the comics even though they're presented as flashbacks in this one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and then this is where I guess we get that first little flashback about the adversary and stuff. Yeah. Um, there's that just that one panel, which is the panel I was talking about before with the pigs dying, actually. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. One dead on, there's one dead on the floor there. Yeah. Sure, within arrow. Like a flashback within a flashback. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing. Like, we were talking about, like, the mature themes and some of the... Um, fruity language I guess and uh, more adult interpretations of how to draw the characters but they don't hold back on the sort of tableaus of gore I mean they don't strike me as um, gratuitous in a way they, they've almost got like a classical art style to them because obviously there's loads of um, imageries of violence in painting and I just think some of the artwork particularly with the the kind of reign of uh, 
devastation that the adversary has obviously wreaked on their former homelands is actually quite beautiful in a way to look at yeah mm. I guess so yeah. <laughs> the thing I did beautiful. point out <laughs> is the colourist um, you know as we go throughout I mean for the whole five issues there's different the colourist depending on what's been told or what's been shown uses different shades so as we go through the back you know as we're going through the um the flashbacks what's happened it's very bluish purplish in color isn't it you know yeah, the, yeah and, they, and they frame the panels don't they yeah. differently as well like i've noticed that in in different aspects they they, they kind of change the borders it's it's really subtle but obviously really effective mm. yeah i mean the adversary is done in red and when we come to i mean bluebeard's going to be featured again his panel showing very ye- got a yellow hue to it yeah, yeah I think, so yeah. you know the colorist once again highlights the differences that makes you makes a reader aware of this is a flashback this guy's rich you know there's the adversary is bloody you know the, the red hues and everything yeah i mean obviously when you break it down it sounds kind of like easy and obvious but very much like i guess cinema they're, they're telling the story mm. or they're complementing it through the imagery um, and that is actually one of the the real finer points of kind of comics and graphic novels. They 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 are just so um, dense visually. Not necessarily that every frame's busy, but just the fact that they're obviously operating on the this the it's not just the text. Obviously, the pictures need to tell the story um, mm. just as much as the text, if not more so. Mm. And I think I think they are. They, I was quite impressed. Although I'd be keen to see how the art style changes on further story arcs. Um, I thought it was, you know, it did complement the text very well, actually, in this first issue. We get a few interesting scenes in this early on, um, right at the very beginning of the issue. Uh, Bigby tasks Boy Blue and the Flycatcher with recreating the murder scene <laughs> in an identical an apartment with some uh, similar looking furniture and like bags of blood to try and recreate it. Like, it's very much like in Dexter, I guess. <laughs> Um, and I quite like that scene between um, Snow White and uh, King Cole where she's trying to explain what's going on and he just wants it solved as soon as possible because they're yeah. reliant that, yeah they, they want because the remembrance is coming up and they're reliant on these donations and, and, and you know if there's uncertainty as to what's happened to a fable then people are less likely to donate he kind of struck me a little bit kind of similar to the mayor of um i can't remember the name of the town in jaws yeah i was just, uh, uh, amity was it yeah yeah i think it's called amity yeah yeah that, that's exactly what i thought when i was reading yeah. it <laughs> yeah. i had a different take on it has anyone ever seen uh, the episode of red dwarf where they have their future selves and they all come in yeah. onto yeah. starbucks and they're all fat dwarf. yeah um it reminds me of Rimmer the fat Rimmer <laughs> and I couldn't like, we were talking before about the voices we read in our heads I couldn't help but read it in fat Rimmer's voice it's a bit different but yeah now he that fat Rimmer he obviously has been um, seduced hasn't he by being able to experience the finer things yeah. throughout history yeah. so you're right he's bought very much it's into the like, uh, yeah. the kind of corrupt um I don't know bourgeoisie and he's not bothered about you know actually if other people are getting trampled on as long as he's able to mm. have the best of everything mm. yeah I mean like he's eating this soup and lashings of like butter on bread and stuff like he doesn't care, mm. doesn't care it's at all. a constant thing isn't it I, mean, I just remember back to the Lord of the Rings I think it's Return of the King with um, the steward of Gondor yeah oh, yeah so the steward of Gondor yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly I mean, when, when the, the city's crumbling around him and he's yeah. just sat there eating lunch <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh yeah 
<laughs> it just seems like another thing, you know, like Fable Town is essentially on its on the edge of collapsing. And it is here, I mean, holding buttered bread, he's got loads of cereals, lavish is eating while he's talking to Snow. Mm. And he also gives um you know, the letter, you know, like he gives her a compliment. Of course you do, you're smart, competent, and because it's in bold the emphasis is on that word and it's almost like a slap in the face it's a put down yeah you you are just competent you're not very good mm-hmm. you'll get it solved but like um, Snow when she talks to Bigby about the mayor she's under no delusions as well and she kind of is very smart in the sense that she says you know his role like the mayor's role is just really to mm. shake hands with people and play nice I'm the one who actually runs yeah Fable Town I'm the one who does like the new yeah degree. I guess that follows on a little bit from um from the Wolf Among Us, where where her character ends in, in the first season of the Wolf Among Us, is that, that she's taken up the role of the actual day to day running of um, of Fable Town and trying to keep everything in order and keep the fables happy. And King Cole's just there for as in a ceremonial capacity and nothing more really. Yeah, I mean he in effect is a another shade of yeah. Crane, so to speak, in yeah. terms of his uh, ties, I guess, to what will be dirty money I guess I don't know how it's going to pan out but that's the kind of suggestion that it kind of creates and then you get um, obviously Bigby I think has taken Jack's computer and gone to we get to see like the library again you know like the library um, Mm. from the uh, sorry from the from the game and then we get a shot a panel don't we which is a very large image of um, the flying monkey and again sort of I think Bigby makes like passing comments every now and then was how comes everyone's got like a much bigger room than me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's quite interesting because he just gives all this stuff. He's, he's not tech savvy, is he? And he just dumps all this stuff on snow. You know, she's like, what? I'm doing all your work. Well, you want to be part of it? Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. He says he's a, he says he's a genetic Luddite. That's a great yeah. line. I have to use that. <laughs> <laughs> but again, he's sort of like he's got a plan as to what he's doing, and he's not cluing Snow White into what the plan is. He's just like, here's this computer. Just find out what you can. I've got more important things yeah. to do. Yeah. That that yeah. whole kind of keeping a veil over what he was up to um, really reminded me of moments in the game and like how I felt with Snow. Like how much are you going to take her into your confidence and how much of an ally is she actually going to be rather than a barrier? So I thought that was, again, they obviously have managed to capture that particular nuance of their relationship from the comics to the game very well. Maybe he was listening to your thoughts on The Wolf Among Us and he agreed that she was just a pain in the ass all the way through that, so it's best to keep her in the dark. <laughs> I did like, there's a, there's a scene after that when um, Boy Blue and Flycatcher are uh, hard at work trying to recreate the murder scene and there's a discussion between the two about what's supposed to be written on the wall and um, the flycatcher's trying to write um, no more happening ever after rather than no more happily ever after <laughs> and he's like spelling yeah. it out phonetically how to write happily <laughs> yeah. and then we get to see Grimble awake for yeah. once like, yeah. he has to wake him up yeah after that there's a pretty big scene isn't there it's the first time we see Big B properly in wolf form yeah, um, yeah, blue, yeah, and it, yeah. That's a, that's a great, um, that's a really well composed um, slide, isn't it? So a really well composed image when uh, he comes in, mm-hmm. you know, and threatens to, I think, yep. tear Bluebeard's throat out or something mm-hmm. like that. I can't remember, but yeah, no, I like the perspective where you're looking over Bluebeard's shoulder, and obviously Bluebeard's a muscular, uh, big guy, but you know, 
Bigby as the wolf just completely dwarfs him even like he's one of his hands is extended and like he's got these really sharp talons Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that that sort of um, it's another scene that that was recreated well the the tone it was recreated quite well in The Wolf Among Us the the, the bit where um, uh, Bluebeard is torturing the woodsman uh, early on in I think it's episode two of of The Wolf Among Us and yeah it shows that like despite the amnesty Bluebeard is still not a particularly nice character and and perhaps likes to torture people yeah (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, and it's also showing that in the past that Bluebeard seems to have killed wolves you know and and then and then they're having a little verbal sparring you know that that wolves big be saying oh well we're at the point of a lance really not just with a thin yeah with an army yeah and then right at the point where it looks like things are going to go really badly south um, Snow White and Gribble turn up with uh, a troll and um, Buffkin. Buffkin again holding a mace I love yeah. mace. wielding yeah. a mace <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think um, the troll is actually Grimble I, I think oh Oh yeah, he might be actually because he's not the doorman. The doorman's oh, okay. yeah, it's the doorman that's holding the baseball bat, and then yeah, Grimble is uh, yeah. I think Grimble is the is is the security guard at the or, or the guy at the desk. Yeah, but like without his glamour or whatever, you know how he can change. And then obviously uh, yeah, sorry, Buffkins there as it well. Is Grimble. And there's some there's there's some talk, isn't there, about because um, I think Bigby's saying, can you even use that? Because we've obviously seen Bluebeard. Um, using like fencing earlier he's saying to Snow can you even use that sword and she says it's from the Jabberwocky um, is that a poem or a short story I think it is it is a poem yeah, yeah. so again I like all that like intertextual referencing of like the other literature it's, it, it gives it um, especially if you're kind of half familiar with it because it helps like fill in a few blanks and it's just clever the way he's obviously kind of reinterpreting those things and just drawing from lots of different stories and uh, yeah sorry this is the, also the, the issue where we, we learn that you know Bigby's up to something because he's on the telephone and obviously we can't we don't know what else is being said but he seems to be ahead of one step ahead of people whilst Colin's asleep outside again rather undermining our idea that he was his ally <laughs> that he was the, he was his like, investigative yeah we're so tired running after him that's what <laughs> is it clear who he's on the phone to Flycatcher. I was just thinking. The I same think thing. he's on the phone to Jack yeah. and Flycatcher. Oh, right, Not right. Jack, sorry. Blue uh, boy. Yeah, boy Blue. And the- or Boy Blue, yeah. sorry. Oh, yeah. And Flycatcher. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Because he's like telling them to clean up the mess yeah. they've just made and clean yeah. up the mess in Rose's apartment as well. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of how he figures it out, isn't it? Because he says yeah. to Snow White just after that how um, about the shock if he lost too much blood and that through them doing that, there's obviously too much blood for her to have. Yes, that's it. So the cliffhanger is that. You know, we are meant to believe that Rose Red is dead, and he kind of he isn't completely subtle in how he breaks that to Snow. And I think we get an image of like a uh, really startled, mm-hmm. don't we? Mm, yeah, yeah. He doesn't he doesn't break it to her particularly gently. No, but we do get good no. panels where there's no words in two of the panels where he puts the phone down, and he just sits with his um, he- head in his hands. Yeah, you know, with his cigarette and everything. Like he kind of is like shit. I have to yeah. tell that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. And that's the end of this issue. 
Nick gave us some more comments about this issue, as he has with the others. He says, Big B has Flycatcher and Boy Blue recreating a crime scene in an apartment similar to Rose Red. That seems like a fun job. <laughs> I wish we had got the interviews that Big B had done with Black Forest Witch and Prince Charming fully instead of just a flashback. Although I suppose it worked as a good way to introduce King Cole, which is something we all said. Um, mm-hmm. The showdown before transformed Big B and Bluebeard left me wanting them to actually fight. Uh, we end on another cliffhanger, but now we know Rose Red is in fact dead. Who did it? Mm. And that takes us nicely into issue four, which is called Remembrance Day, and that was published in October of 2002. Uh, just in terms of the cover art, I think we may have mentioned this possibly off recording, I'm not sure, but this one is where we have, again, a very painterly um, kind of textual aesthetic and again we've got Colin down the bottom almost underneath um, Beauty's <laughs> dress because she's um, they're, in, they're in like formal attire aren't they and I presume this is Beauty and the Beast dancing at the Remembrance Ball but again with a little clever detail of kind of putting these almost um, anarchic images in the modern day um, Beauty's got her mobile phone out <laughs> yeah <laughs> while she's dancing and then peeking out between that and uh, well, I think it's that's the Flatiron building and the top of the Chrysler building there is Colin again oh right um, yeah yeah and he's got yeah, like an earpiece yeah, in like isn't he yeah like a headset big B big B I'm here I'm going undercover for you <laughs> literally yeah <laughs> that's right yeah he's peeking out from under her dress so um in terms of the synopsis for this then so again taken from the comic itself we've got in which everyone dresses up to the nines old stories are retold and the wolf takes a swim Bigby's investigation into Rose's murder reaches its climax at Fabletown's Remembrance Day Ball but who would invite a psycho killer to the most prestigious social event of the year and uh, this uh, kind of begins we get again was it Beast and Beauty arrive and he's returned to his you know more princely form and we, we, I think there's like a, a casual aside. Somebody congratulates him on, you know, not being a beast anymore. And he says, oh, it's, you know, because she's happy with me for once, for this one <laughs> night, because she doesn't want to miss this social event. And they start bickering like some married couples do almost straight away. <laughs> yeah, straight away, because she wants to buy more lottery tickets to win um, Prince Charming's land and titles back in uh, in the homeland, which none of them can access yes. anymore. But it's because she says that she was she came up from poverty and she married into into wealth, and she wants something. She wants a land and title of her own. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. right. And uh, yeah, that's because. Um, so we know that Prince Charming wanted to sell his uh, you know lands and title on the internet, but Big B's come up with a more ingenious plan that they're going to auction them off at a lottery at the Remembrance Day Ball. So that, and that kind of like feeds into later on why he's kind of done that. But um, again, that's quite a clever way that they've shifted that around and it shows that actually Bigby's kind of behind the scenes orchestrating things. Mm. The other kind of key point is we get a speech mm. by King Cole and that's like accompanied by a lot of really, again, rich kind of visual imagery about their past really and, you know, how before they were all yeah. strangers in their own kind of separate realms and stories and and how you know through obviously turmoil they've they've had to kind of come together i suppose it kind of it's it's trying to phrase what's happened to them although it's this horrendous terrible thing and it's almost that tragedy that unites them mm-hmm. there's hope because obviously he's got to put that kind of political spin on it because he's wanting them to you know he, he's having to cash in on their nostalgia ultimately 
Yeah, I mean, it's a it's great um, way of kind of catching you up with the story. And it's almost the way mm. it talks about the adversary as being almost like the devil or Satan. Like the, the fact that they're talking about him falling to uh, earth from the, the, the heavens, possibly, or being that kind of outcast. But also you get details about the fact that they didn't all leave at once. It wasn't like a global domination instantly. It was almost like, uh, I guess, Sauron in, in the Lord of the Rings, the kind of this slow spread of kind of malice through different lands and that they 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 turned a blind eye when emerald city fell or when other you know another town fell because they thought oh it won't happen to us i that whereas they're realizing that you know almost like this okay i guess like an analogy of the second world war if they'd have stepped in when hitler invaded poland you know things could have possibly been different if they'd have acted if they'd have been united earlier they might have been able to prevent this and then we learn how some of the fables did manage to kind of survive undetected um but then obviously came through so i think obviously bigby must have been possibly one of them that kind of didn't get um he was able to kind of escape but he lived still within the homelands as an outcast uh you know trying to survive on the edges like the resistance yeah i um i'll say now i won't mention who it is because i don't want to spoil it for you or the listeners but i did accidentally inadvertently whilst flicking through (laughs) the wiki discover who the adversary is oh and (laughs) it's really really clever Uh, that's all i'll say okay so Uh. yeah that's good if to you, know, perhaps. That's an incentive yeah. to read yeah, on. Yeah, it's it's incentive to read on, yeah. I mean, okay. it's good to see because, it, it, like you say, it does relate to World War Two and the Holocaust and relates to that uh, Martin Yoma. Um, first, you know, first they came for the socialists, then they came for, you know, this group and that group. And, yeah, yeah they did, did nothing. nothing yeah. So, like, we've got the Emerald Kingdom. So it's Oz, isn't it, that falls first. Then we've got Narnia falling, you know, the, the kingdom of the great lion. And again, we did nothing because mm. we found the old lion a bit too pompous and holier than thou for our tastes. You know, yeah. so all these kingdoms are falling and, you know, we do, as a, as a reader, and if you're aware of these kings, you know who he's referring to. He didn't refer him to as Narnia and Aslan and Oz, but these are all part of the greater myths and these greater folklore mm. that's been built around. And I like the way that kind of transitions. It's like a really good speech and it's got some brilliant artwork to accompany it. And then we kind of see that it's actually being read off cue mm. cards by King Cole. And I don't, I mean, although of course that's a common practice, part of me feels like, is that giving us an, a, a, a kind of insight into maybe his, inauth- in, his inauthenticity or his insincere? Yeah. And it's like it's almost like it, he's deliberately written a brilliant speech to kind of prime the audience to open their purses. <laughs> yeah, the way it's framed um, throughout the the, the the majority of the speech with these these beautiful and also horrific images, it it feels like it's something that's coming from his heart. And then you get the reveal that now he's just reading off a page, yeah, <laughs> like a prepared <laughs> speech. He has like a massive goblet of wine as well <laughs> that he's to taste yeah. as well. <laughs> But I do like we get little um, panels that show people from all over Fable Town, so you get a sense that it is actually quite a big place. Yeah. And you know, there, there's other stories going on, but we're not actually being introduced to them yet. And you even get a little shot of the more um, animal form characters up at the farm. Mm. Yes, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, the, the, the characters that can't survive in um, because they, either they can't afford the glamour or the glamours won't work on them that have to, to reside on on the farm. 
and some of the poorer denizens of Fabletown who couldn't afford to go to the ball celebrating privately in their own homes. And that's quite, I guess, a quite um, serious in some respects moment. And then it's counteracted with this little interlude with, uh, is it Pinocchio? Oh, He's just oh, complaining. That's that, oh, yeah. get so that was brilliant. <laughs> that, that might be one of my favourite lines in like anything <laughs> ever. I'm over three centuries old and I still haven't gone through Pooby. I want to go grow up. I want my balls to drop and I want to get laid. It's brilliant. And like, I've never, it shows you though like, his clever way of thinking about stuff because that is what Pinocchio wished for to be a real boy yeah. Yeah. he never thought of the consequences of him being a little boy for centuries and centuries yeah. but like yeah he's like that boy on the cusp of puberty seeing everything but he can't do anything about it it's just brilliant yeah, it's uh, almost like the um, in, do you remember Interview with a the Vampire there's the young girl I think it's played by yeah. Kirsten yeah. Dunst in the actual film when she obviously gets changed oh, just, yeah, very early yeah. and then you know that that's the fate that befalls her that she'll, she'll never age she'll never grow up so although you know she's obviously got the wisdom and the foresight of like millennia that she's lived through she, she's never treated as a woman or as an equal so it's, it's a really inter- I mean obviously that's played primarily for gags but like you said it really does tap into something that's a you know very kind of potent isn't mm. it that kind of idea yeah. of being trapped within a child's it's body it's good to see that um, well not good but it's interesting to see the social divide isn't it the opulence of the party working callers and everything you've got the massive fountain you've got all of them drinking wine as we go through we've got the, the mice you know we've got in the countryside so these fables are everywhere yeah mm. there's the, the sort of like underground parties happening out elsewhere so like uh, there's a one panel of some characters including I'm pretty sure that's supposed to be Alice and the white rabbit from mm. Alice in Wonderland and they're just out in the woods having a few <laughs> tinnies uh, to celebrate and yeah <laughs> The mice out on the phone. Yeah, like the, yeah. like the different yeah. New Year's parties yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that go across the land. And the mice celebrating with a few tankards and a giant <laughs> block of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, we see that obviously Bluebeard and Jack have been held in custody by Bigby. And then um, from what I can't remember off the top of my head, but he, he then decides that he, he first of all says that they can't go to this remembrance ball and they're going to miss you know next year's as well um but then all of a sudden he says oh go on then you can go because you've missed most of it anyway or something you know it, it kind of read a, a little bit jarringly but i guess again it's because um we get a sense that his kind of plans coming together mm. like and he needs them to be there doesn't he like he almost needs them to be there to be able to pull it off in some way yeah he's like he's, he's one step ahead of all the other characters he's also one step ahead of the reader as well um like first time I read through this and I was like well, I, I don't understand what's going on what is his plan obviously he's got some idea of what's going on but he's playing he, he's he's all the he's, he's playing all of the, the the characters in Fable Town that are involved in a story into his plan so that he can have his grandiose reveal mm. at the end of the episode yeah when we shown when it when it through the issue when he does get shown to have the upper hand in some way Collins always there because straight away again yeah. like on the telephone before now that we he's sort of almost going to be putting his plan into action at the ball we see Colin in the in the you know in the uh, kitchen trying to eat all the food yeah, and have a carrot, yeah. I, are those are the, the 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 caterers in there are they I'm guessing they're supposed to they can't be fables because there are fables in the actual ballroom who aren't glamoured. Um, but for a, for a moment, I thought, are they supposed to be Mondays? Um, because mm. Colin talks 
quite clearly um, to one of them because there's the, there's a bit where um, one of the chefs leads down when he catches Colin trying to steal some carrots and says, "Are you on the menu?" And he says, "Oh gosh, I sure hope not." <laughs> <laughs> and I wondered whether they're supposed to be Mondays or not. Was he definitely talking to him? They must be other fables, mm. I think. Because obviously, again, part of it is we're realising that these fables, whilst they might have come from the realm of fantasy and folklore, they've all got to get nine to five jobs now. Yeah. You know, they've all got to live with the mundane. Yeah, Beast <laughs> alludes it early in this issue to how he, he earns minimum wage working at a bookshop. And yeah, they've all got jobs to try and make ends meet. Well, the ones who are less well off. And least. we get to see uh, Big B looking a little bit um, out of his depth because he does to dance with snow, doesn't he? And he's kind of drawing attention to himself because he can't help yeah. but tread all over her feet. Reminds me of my I think, again, it works in the sense of showing that he doesn't belong. Like This is all like the the toffs, isn't gen- it? This gentry, is like, yeah. Mm. yeah, exactly. And he's still on the outskirts of that. Still chain smoking, yeah. <laughs> well, we get Big B up in the pool, doesn't he? And he's absolutely... Yeah. It shows yeah. his lack of respect for authority. He just doesn't give a shit, really. <laughs> because he's, um, in King Cole's pool, he's having a big you know, swim, probably leaving hairballs all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> but um, his big plan is, you know... And, and when he greets them all, he doesn't get by even bother get dressed. He's just in his dressing gown, mm. isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, I was kind of at a loss. I understand he wants to get them all in one place so that he can kind of reveal what's going on. But yeah, I did, why did he need to go for a swim? Why, why has it got to happen on the roof? I think he just takes the advantage of the fact that the that everybody's inside. And so he thought, right, no one's here. I'll have a quick dip in, <laughs> in King Cole's pool because <laughs> he doesn't have one in his apartment. But then, yeah, he, he kind of, the, the, the rest of the scene is just him reveling in, um, what does he call it? Um, the uh, I think it's like scene. the classic parlour scene. scene. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's reveling in the parlour scene where he gets to reveal um, that he, he's one step ahead of everybody and he knows what's gone on mm. and tries to drag it out as much as possible. And the other characters keep on saying, God, just get on with it. Get on with it. What's happened? Who, who did it? Yeah, because he even says, if this was if this were a work of fiction, the author would pause the story here to ask the readers if they've put all the clues together yet. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like, yeah, I hadn't. No, me neither. <laughs> no, me neither. I had no idea. We learned that Jack's kind of inherited, or oh, he's won the lottery, hasn't he, of the lands and everything. Um, of Prince Charming and then you're right yeah there's a big kind of unveiling of a surprise guest at the ball when it transpires that Rose Red is in fact still very much alive Uh, a bit like the snow one I guess the snow revealing the the wolf among us you know where we suspected that she was dead but um, yeah so she's there and she's got like a brunette wig on and he kind of pulls that off and reveals her and it kind of ends there doesn't it I mean I think that in a way I almost felt this issue and the next one could have been one. Yeah. Like it, it mm-hmm. felt like an artificial break. Mm. Some of the other cliffhangers worked. I'm not 100% sure having 90% of the next issue just being mm. him laying out how he solved the crime. I thought, I don't know, do you know what I mean? Like I felt like that definitely could have been the ending of this one, whereas this kind of almost aborts too early yeah, for me. Yeah, like could have had another five pages and been done, kind of. Mm. Yes, yes, issues, but I yeah. guess they had to, I guess they had to deliver like a mm. set amount, like Probably, the five-issue yeah. art. I mean, this end scene is actually Bill Willingham just speaking to the reader, isn't it? It's mm. not, you know, like every last thing is, everyone calm down, sit down and stop talking for just a moment and I'll tell you all what she said, what she did, how she did it and why she did it. So it's like, he's just, he, he, 
in one of the characters speaking to the rest of the fables is actually the writer saying hold on it's going to come and you'd be like I, I bet it'd be just grueling waiting for that month waiting yeah. for that issue oh absolutely to come out, yeah you know. I suppose it does force you then to come up with your own hypothesis like I didn't bother because I didn't know one um, but then again I didn't have a month to think about mm. it so I suppose I would have been rereading it trying to solve it if I had that amount of time on my hands <laughs> Nick uh, gave us some comments about issue four and he says Charming with Snow's help is selling off his land via a lottery to be drawn at the Rembrandt's Day Ball a good way to make some money we finally get the backstory as to how everyone came to Fable Town well the general story and our poor Pinocchio he just wants to get the <laughs> <laughs> Bigby can't dance, Flatfoot, Bigby has cracked the case, and Rose Red's killer is Rose Red. What? To be continued. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Big bad wolf, big bad wolf. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? La 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 la. Okay, moving on to the the final issue. Uh, number five, the famous parlor room scene, Sans Parlor, which was first published in November 2002. So the cover art for this uh, issue is again in that sort of painterly style. It's um, rose red peeking out from beneath uh, the um, the brunette wig that she was that she was hiding uh, that she was disguising herself with, uh, with a backdrop of like a brick wall with some uh, graffiti on it of I think that's supposed to be calling the pig again. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, like Fable Town. Yeah, sucks Colin the pig hiding behind a big like uh, <laughs> graffiti rose, and then um, yeah. Fable Town sucks scrawled underneath it. So the, the brief synopsis from the beginning of the issue states: in which everything is neatly wrapped up in the end, even though few are satisfied with the outcome. So it's revealed that uh, Rose Red uh, is not in fact dead, and she's been hiding out in plain sight, just wearing a wig which is surprising you think that someone would have recognised you at least think at least a sister would have recognised the face but there you go yeah this is where this is one of the few issues where it happens straight after like it's a complete continuity sequel yeah. like it, it, it opens with exactly you know the same the very moments after the other issue ended and we we kind of get Bigby talking quite interestingly about the fact that he's been a cop for so long mm. and actually you don't get the it's not necessarily an exciting job, and actually, car chases accumulate too much paper. Yeah, <laughs> and he's, you can just get the impression that he's just reveling in this whole um, reveal scene and taking his time and toying with his audience as if he's like an actor on a stage um, rather than a detective revealing what he's found. Yeah, like a rare, rare moment of grandstanding. Yes. <laughs> it's almost like a hunter playing with a prey. Yeah, yeah. So he's a wolf and he knows what, what's going on and he's just playing around with all the different balls of cotton who are of a prey. Yeah, lighting his cigarette, you know, slowly lighting his mm. cigarette. Yeah, right. And holding forth in his like dressing mm. gown or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then he reveals in a series of um, little flashback panels how he pieced together what happened um and this is this is the point where if you go back to the the first issue and you can you start to piece again it's like oh yeah that kind of makes sense so it's revealed that that he he understands that jack's in good shape and it's not a short it is quite a short run from where the taxi would have dropped him off up to his office but he pretends to be out of breath as if he's run straight from a murder scene mm. um which bigby does a good job of, of hiding the fact that he doesn't buy it at all and then investigating the murder scene there's things that 
that don't make sense. There's blood spread all over the place, which wouldn't happen in a normal murder scene. And um, there, for instance, like the lamp that's been dropped over the light bulb is still intact, as if it was just laying down on its side rather than knocked over. And certain prized possessions in Rose Red's um, apartment have managed to escape being covered in blood, namely her <laughs> stereo system and her favourite CDs. <laughs> I mean, this really reminded me of the scene where Toad had staged like a breaking or something. Oh, didn't, yeah. he? didn't he kind of like stage some kind of crime scene? In, a, in one of the episodes of Wolf Among Us. And I think there's like similar clues, like possibly again with a, with a light or a lamp yeah. that isn't necessarily broken or it's been moved and not plugged in. I can't remember, but again, it, it really sort of harkened back to that and possibly they drew inspiration from mm. this. And again, the, the, the flashback panels, like Andy suggested, uh, mentioned to us earlier, is like in a purple sort of sheen. So they're kind of colour coding the timelines. Yeah. And then uh, Snow White is furious with, uh, with, with Bigby because she believes that he must have, that, it, that he might have known all along that she was alive and he, he didn't reveal it to her. And basically, he's explained yeah, that. Yeah, that's that, fair enough. Yeah. But as he explains <laughs> it, but it, although he didn't buy the crime scene uh, or the crime as it was presented, he still wasn't sure um, that she was still alive because. It could have been something that was staged that had then gone wrong or something that she had staged and then the murderer actually went through with the murder rather than trying to fake her, her death because there was no explanation for the amount of blood um, that was all over the place. And then uh, in the... I guess we, we didn't mention it in the previous uh, issue... Uh, Snow White mentions something about um, keeping the, uh, the, the the cooks keeping the best food aside for themselves, and that finally yes, clicks yeah. with with Bigby, and he pieces together the um, a, a little detail that was in the first right in the first issue of the, the padlock that had been removed from the freezer compartment on her the fridge freezer in her apartment, and he realizes that she'd basically been donating blood or storing storing a pint of blood every few weeks in a bag and then storing it in the freezer so that she could use her own blood to stage her murder so it looked like she died um rather than you know trying to use fake blood or blood from somewhere else it's clever it's very clever yeah it is it's clever and kind of very kind of like macabre Mm. but it also in terms of the investigation shows bigby's incredibly patient like so, he could have been very impulsive and told Snow too early what he knew, or somehow felt he needed to act, otherwise other bad things might happen. But he he was confident that he would be able to sit back, wait till you know he he dot because I think he said like he'd solved half of the case very early mm. on, but he had to wait just to see how things panned out. To and he he he's only coming forward now that he feels he's got a hand on every single element of it. So I thought that was interesting that sometimes we would equate his bestial nature with impulse and violence and kind of recklessness, whereas he's been shown to be really measured and composed. Yeah, and the other things that he managed to work out as he went along that that he didn't reveal at all. Like he knew that, well, it's, it's fairly obvious that... Um, that Jack Horner is is a scam artist, and he knew all along that the Jack probably had something going on, which is why he had um, Snow White decrypt one of his computers. 
And he basically postulates that Jack got into some debt. And so Rose Red hatches this plan to get some money off uh, Bluebeard in exchange for promising to marry him in a year. Uh, Gives the money to Jack. Jack loses it because he's an idiot. Um, And so that's why she stages her own death to to escape the potential wrath of Bluebeard, who has a very checkered past, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those very dysfunctional relationships where they could hatch a plan this problematic and think it would work. I mean, (laughs) he's basically pimping her out as a prostitute, isn't he? Essentially, yeah. She has a relationship. She doesn't just... It's not just about, oh... I'll promise to get married to you, Bluebeard. They have an affair, don't they? You know, and Jack's seemingly got to be okay about all mm. this then, you know, because she's got to have a convincing cover. And and the fact that she's obviously so willing to do that for her partner, it really reminded me of um, the kind of stories you see in films or in books or what sadly you read about in, uh, from real life, where often, like, it's drug addicts or, you know, something like that. People are so down on their luck and so desperate that they would they would, like, sell their bodies or demean themselves so much you know to get the money that they need Mm. for a fix so again although it's a very enjoyable and entertaining comic i felt that it did get across the real kind of misery of some of these characters existence because like obviously jack is presented as you know really a fool but he's also a mean fool in the sense that he makes I mean, he's the one who victimises Rose, mm. isn't it, ultimately? Yeah, did anyone else get, a, once the, 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 the original plan was revealed, get a little bit of a vibe of um, William H. Macy in Fargo, the sort of like incompetent yeah. <laughs> plan to try and get himself out of financial difficulties? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sort of shows the contrast between Red and Snow, doesn't it? I mean, she's trying very strange, but she's you know Rose Red's always almost try to trap the attention of Snow and try to get you know higher improve her position in life and this is one way that she saw this you know maybe give Jack this uh, money and he's the idiot that missed the dot com hype and did it afterwards <laughs> Yeah, you know, but she's always trying to improve herself, and the, the lengths she will go to improve herself. Now, whether she's truly in love with Jack, and it doesn't really su- suggest yeah. it either way. You can you can interpret. Oh, I think I think she. Yeah, I mean, I think she mm. must have, you know, strong feelings for him to do that. But I agree, it's almost in a way like Faith and Nerissa in the Wolf Among Us. You, you it's very quick. You can really quickly judge them. Because um, I think, you know, he, Rose Red's even described as like exhibiting sluttish behaviour or whatever. It'd be so easy to stand back and judge them, whereas actually you get to see that, you know, some of them don't have many options. So I'm not, it's not condoning their behaviour. They've still made poor mm. decisions, but it's easier for someone like Snow to sit there and just sneer at them in disdain because she's not down in the, the grime and the mud that some of them are living through. And of course, besides working out um, the murder, well, at least working out that not everything is is as it appears with the suspected murder. Bigby's also been playing a, a longer game all the way through to try and make things right for everyone. Um, so he's sort of playing characters, so he's got uh, so that he can enact this plan to um, make Prince Charming uh, auction off his. Um, 
his his land and uh, his title and estates at this uh, at the ball, so they can bring in they bring in like a few million dollars or something like that, and it's all an elaborate plan so that he can then sort of like uh, the, the, but the, he, well, I suppose it, he doesn't have it all together because he. Um, puts together the last few pieces with Snow White doesn't he so that everybody and then she also (laughs) yeah I mean that she's obviously very much the one who comes in and I think makes that arrangement so they kind of are working in tandem at the end it's her that has kind of cleverly thought back of how they can kind of penalise Bluebeard so they only have to and Prince Charming give him a certain yeah exactly yeah so she kind of evens the playing field so Bluebeard's not going to get married but he'll get reimbursed his dowry Mm with Prince Charming's money in effect <laughs> Prince Charming will just have to accept you know a few thousands left after she's funded the investigation and paid Bluebeard off and then ultimately uh, Rose Red and Jack get given a was it a suspended sentence and loads of community service and, and a fine that just happens to be the same figure thereabouts that Prince Charming has got yeah. So that he ends up having to buy his title back. So, yeah, I mean, it is all very neatly tied up, but they've all been made to feel that they've lost yeah, at the end yeah. of it. Although you'd have thought Jack and Rose Red would be over the moon. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, they get they do get their, their debt cleared out. Yeah, they're not rich, but they no longer are in the predicament mm-hmm. they were. But they didn't seem particularly well, great. None of them, them have they? lost, but none of them have given. They've all gone back to the same place they started from before all the health. They have, they have, but Rose yeah. Red doesn't have to marry Bluebeard yeah. now. So she, you know, the artist, they should be really pleased. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, no one seems to thank him, no. do they? Like Big B. It's just like Wolf Among Us. Ungrateful yeah. luck. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it kind of goes back though, doesn't it? It resets it for the next story arc. Mm. Um, we're back at the status yes. quo almost, because Blue, the Bluebeard marriage was created for this arc. Now it's gone. Everyone's got everything back, so they can use it. I don't know if they revisit those things and use them as devices again, or um, they could we'll have to find out. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right about that resetting, yeah. Adam, because yeah, you're right. We think that Snow and Bigby have have come to more of a uh, warm familiarity because of the case, whereas actually, when he well, when he reveals that her going as he states the ball wasn't part of the plan he just wanted her to come and he was frightened to ask her she just I think really harshly shoots him down in flames yeah (laughs) so he tells him not to do it again or something and reiterates (laughs) they're just colleagues yeah Yeah, she says it wasn't don't do it again we're colleagues and nothing more seriously never again back off (laughs) (laughs) yeah so money down now do you think they ever get together uh I think they do, and then there's some kind of magic used to make them both forget. Yeah, yeah, possibly, yeah. No, there's a lot of issues to get through, so we'll have to find out. I do like the way, yeah, I think so. I think we'll be, I think we'll get together. Mm. I'm going to say no. Mm. I do like the fact that Bluebeard gets so pissed off. He actually broke the contract himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He undid himself, yeah. Nick's thoughts on the final issue. He says, In the conclusion of the Rose Red mystery, we're shown how clever Bigby is and how hard Snow White can be. Bigby gets his parlour room scene and then it's up to Snow White to deal with how to resolve everything. Her plan is brilliant. No one is happy, but no one is dead. Kind of win-win? Yeah. 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 Bigby says, uh, What's left to decide? You've worked it all out so that no one ends up happy. And she says, But at least the misery is spread out as much as possible. It, it is. It's kind of like Bluebeard will feel cheated and Prince Charming will feel cheated. Both of them probably deserve it. Um, but the, the more vulnerable characters, um, Rose Red through 
just circumstance and Jack Horner through his own incompetence um, found themselves in very difficult situations and they're both their problems are both resolved at the end of the issue and uh, Bluebeard and Prince Charming don't really lose out uh, really apart from their pride being hurt. It's um, and it's mentioned in the comic itself because we all managed to live happily ever after, after all, more or less. It's sort of like that noir storytelling mm. thing where you know life's going on. You know these people are happy where they are, but it's not that um, fairy tale ending where oh they lived happily ever after. You know, and they were happy. You know, carrying on. This is just like yeah, it's not the best ending it's not the worst it's just an ending and the characters are we're happy they are settled yeah content even they've both both Big B and Snow White have done a, a great job of maintaining the status quo which I guess mm. is the situation they've been in for the however many centuries they've been in uh, in Fable Town just maintaining the status quo trying to make sure that these fables the these various characters that come from different kingdoms back in the homeland and were probably a lot of them were adversaries mm. before the exodus that they try and get along and just coexist as as peacefully as possible the story is really Snow White's story it's not you know all the elements she's a central figure you know she ties Charming in she you mm-hmm. know she's tied to Rose Red she's tied to Big Bear you know through everything and she probably shows a one who in terms of character development she changes you know at the beginning she seems a bit of a heartless bitch you know, when she's talking to Beauty and the Beast. Mm. And as we get along, we see her being professional in her job. We see her being effective as an investigator. We see her trying to mm. uh, deal with King Cole, his demands. Um, we see her in the party element. And then we see her picking all the pieces up and putting it back together for everybody. And yeah, and she's obviously doing this under duress mm. as well because she thinks her sister's yeah. dead. I mean, she might yeah. be estranged, but she clearly still does care for her. Yeah, and it, it's similar uh, to Thor for Mungus in that, like, the biggest character development arc in season one of the Wolf, Wolf Among Us is Snow White's as well. Mm. Big B's character is ends that series pretty much the same as he yeah. starts the series, whereas in that Snow White starts as kind of naive to what is really going on in Fable Town and then as the as the series progresses and when it gets to its conclusion at the end she becomes more aware and uh, she grows as a character genuinely um, so yeah I, 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 wonder, I wonder actually as we read along whether she is perhaps the central character of, of the mm. Fable series and not Bigby whereas Bigby is more the sort of storytelling device but he's not the main he's not the main central character of the, of the story yeah. Okay, so we we're going to go on to our final thoughts then. So I, th- I think you know, based on the discussion, we would agree that we did all enjoy reading these comics, and uh, yeah, yeah, mm, and immensely. I think we all are going to be going away and carrying on reading through well certainly the next arc and maybe kind of like ongoing through that so who knows we might get another ballyhoo uh, episode if you know that's what the listeners ask for because we'll certainly be kind of reading independently through some more of these issues um 
I was going to say, would we recommend it to people who have played The Wolf Among Us, or do you think that's not necessary? I mean, I think we would say we would recommend it quite broadly, um, but I'd almost say mm-hmm. if you have played The Wolf Among Us, definitely read it, <laughs> if you haven't already. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. A lot of the similarities we've talked about all the way through, it's like a familiar storytelling. You'd feel right at home if you played the games, which I think is why we have all found it so easy to get into, kind of. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's inspired me to go. I want to go back and play the games again. Yeah, well, um, you well. you know you get the just platinum if you do. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I just thought I'd just be aware of that jar, you know, because this was written before Wolf Among Us, so oh, yeah. the characters are slightly different, and it's almost like oh, Snow White is harder here at the start, you know. She, Whereas in the Wolf Among Us, she's quite soft, you know, she quite she understands, we've talked about her understanding mm. of the plight of fables. But yeah, you, you can jump straight in. Um, Big Bid hasn't changed. Yeah, yeah. it's like a, it's some of the expectations yeah. you think might be there, some of the characters you expect to see and they don't. I think it's just like a bump in the road. Like it's only like a momentary mm. um, sort of thing of just disappointment, but that's only born from the fact that you were so invested in the mystery of the the Wolf Among Us game. Um, But then, like I say, you soon get embroiled in, you know, what's happening here. And I think ultimately it's probably very much, you know, once we go on and read a few more issues, I imagine it will go from strength to strength. I think this very much is like a self-contained kind of like introductory. I mean, the murder mystery here doesn't feel as gritty and as nuanced possibly as it was Mm. in the game. Um, but of course, that's because they're doing it across the five first issues that were written. I'm sure, mm. like as you get on into the story, there's some arcs that will rival the the game in terms of storytelling. Mm. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting was DC asked him to ask Bill to change the arc. So originally, the series wasn't meant to start off with the murder mystery. Oh, that's so, interesting. Okay. So this was actually the third arc, I think it was, but they asked him to move it, and he was quite happy to do it. I think it works well as an introduction into the series. It does grip you. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't reveal the whole world, but it reveals enough for you to think, all right, this is good. The characters are good for some development here. The world's interesting. I'm quite interested to see where this goes. Yeah, it gives you like a good basis of all the characters and a brief outline of of um, the differences in in the the. the um the society between the haves and the have-nots as it did in the, in the wolf among us but then also in that one scene gives you a, a, a very good synopsis of what happened uh, that caused the uh, the fables to leave uh, the homeland uh, you know, brief uh, and then little little brief bits of information about the amnesty and, and he like also that. has those moments of humor but also it's all kind of uh, conveyed through the familiar trappings of a murder mystery, which I think, like I said, it works so well at the beginning of Wolf Among Us, and it works again here. That kind of, if you're a fan of genre, it's really like I think Adam was saying, it's like a warm familiarity when you kind of like feel yeah. you know half of the beats, and it makes being introduced to this kind of bizarro world and quite a long list of characters a lot more easy to digest because mm. you kind of are aware of the rules of the game in terms of the story mm. that's being told. What's interesting, what's good as well, but we are f- all familiar with the characters. We're all from our youth. We have all watched these Disney films. We've read some of the grim fairy tales. I, rem- I, f- I remember having the grim fairy tale book, you know, being read to it when I was a kid. So these are characters you are not 
unaware of you're not coming to him cold as such what you were saying then Andy is really good I think is a really good point it's the sleight of hand which is so brilliant by Bill Willingham and the idea Mm. itself it's because it's presenting you with characters that you may have remembered long ago so you don't you know unless you're a student of folklore and fairy tales you might not have a really kind of like they're not necessarily at the just you know at the surface of your consciousness all the time but and they are presented to you here in a a kind of defamiliarized state because they've been like subverted in some way but it actually has the culminating effect of making you be reunited with them or reacquainted with them so like it does stir up that knowledge that's obviously been latent since like your childhood and you kind of realize that you know a lot more about fairy tales than you kind of think you you possibly thought you did and i think that whole not educational aspect but that whole kind of um drawing you back into something that's familiar and making you interested again like we've already been trying to pick out where certain characters are from it kind of makes it makes them come alive again like these old dead stories have given new life in this way we have um some comments from the community and our friend nick who has been with us throughout this episode in spirit we hear his voice from from beyond continues to write to me remembrance day celebration made me more interested in the world in which these characters live and the worlds they come from i've read the entirety of adversary war and quite enjoyed it i'm not sure if you all plan to read through to the end of that storyline or not but if you are i'm on board we're with you captain yeah we're with <laughs> <Yes>. you <laughs> we very much intend to read as much of this as i can now and our very own Stuart, not Stuart Cullen, the other Stuart, uh, he's uh, messaging to say, uh, I finished the Fables comics last night, but unfortunately I'm unable to make the recording tonight. I really enjoyed my first foray into the Fables universe and the story arc of the first five issues is a perfect introduction to it. The style of the comic itself reminds me a lot of classic 70s and 80s era DC, especially Batman. This immediately made the comic feel familiar and easy to read, but I do hope that the style progresses and changes, as while it is a classic style, it is a comic released in 2002. My slight criticism of the story is that you could argue that it is a little simplistic for a five-issue story arc, but as it allows for nearly a dozen characters to be introduced, as well as a handful of cameos, and have their space and universe defined, it serves its purpose. Little touches like the pig crashing uh, Bigby's and appearing later in the background of scenes and the I am the Eggman diner are great and hint at things that could be expanded in the future. Brilliant. Yeah, really great to get some of your thoughts down, Stuart, even if you uh, weren't, wasn't able to make the show. Mm. We've also got some Twitter feedback from Jack Smith, who's at Chronogenesis, and he said, It's been a while since I've read them, but I enjoyed what I've read of the so- series so far. We'll have to check out what arc it is. First arc, yeah, we're volume one. The first, yeah, yeah. first arc. <laughs> but, uh, great to hear from Jack. You know, he's uh, one of our behind-the-scenes guys at LGR, and I know that he's uh, had an incredibly busy time of it moving and that, so we hope he's getting settled in, and, uh, you know, hopefully he'll be able to contribute more going forward. And just before we're going to say our goodbyes, we'll touch briefly on, I guess, what we could call the legacy of Fables or its influence in other media. Um, so... I was aware, I think, because Stuart Cullen this time, he mentioned, I think, in the playlist episode about Once Upon a Time and how that actually by, you know, the ABC TV series who once were going to develop a pilot for Fables, that although that kind of never happened in the end, they did release Once Upon a Time and that kind of had sort of similar ideas about fairy tale characters like Snow White and Prince Charming 
being made to live in the real world by an evil queen but um, again I've not seen it personally but I can kind of recognise that although it's telling a different story it's kind of drawing upon this fable's idea yeah the other one was um, Grimm which was um, produced by NBC um, and they us you know were talking about doing uh, fables but didn't get beyond the scripting stage and I do watch Grimm which is a police procedural set in a world where fairy tales are real and there's one it's basically based around one guy called Nick I think he was and he he can just see these um, fairy tale characters all over because they've got almost like glamour and he can see through the glamour as such and reveal their true selves I've enjoyed it so far it's about four seasons maybe five now um, isn't that a bit weird how they started making it they got to the scripting stage and abandoned it but then made a very similar show you hear about things like that yeah. don't you where it people sounds, come with yeah. scripts and then <laughs> they don't get it and then an identical show comes out well, the, sounds the, a bit dodgy something both Grimm and Once Upon a Time from my understanding are much more commercial in the sense that they're I mean they, they would have shaved off I mean I don't know what age rating Grimm is or something like that but Once Upon a Time in particular that that's very kind of that's like mainstream television, isn't it? Like it's, oh, okay. um, yeah. I, don't, I mean, I, what, all I mean is like it's the fables that we're seeing in the comics have obviously got these kind it's of like rougher edges, or the, yeah, a lot darker and a lot more kind of adult, explicit, yeah. I guess. Mm. And I, I can imagine they would water it down so they can go after a much, you know, broadcast it at prime time and go for a much bigger audience. I mean, I could be completely wrong because I've not seen the shows, but that's just the impression I'm getting. Mm. Um, and I think it is a shame, but I. I I'm excited by the on-off prospect of possibly there being a film because um, I know that Jane Goldman's a name that's been kind of mentioned and she didn't she she was one of the writers on there was that other one what was it called Kingsman. Stardust and she's on King well yeah yeah and obviously she wrote um, oh god I'm forgetting it now was it X-Men was she wrote the first X-Men script or was it no, Kick-Ass no. She did kick ass, yeah. definitely. Okay, that's that's what it is then. And and Stardust as well, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. She she wrote uh, X Men uh, first class. Like she did X Men, kick ass, and Stardust. Yes, that's what I Kingsman. thought. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, her being attached to a potential Warner Brothers film of Fables, uh, you know, is is a good thing. But again, we haven't really kind of heard much about that. Um, I mean, again, I'm doing this retrospectively because I wasn't aware of the Fables comics at the time, but I have heard it said that there is a film project in potentially in the making so I'd love to see that you know come to life I just hope they cast Josh Brolin as Bigby <laughs> but it would be hard to kind of it may be the format suits TV more but maybe on one of the cable channels like um, well I don't know like a HBO or a Showtime or an AMC something they can kind of get away with showing more kind of graphic mm-hmm. material yeah maybe a Netflix or something like that I just find yeah. it yeah quite find it straight strange because he's, been, he's taken all these characters which have no copyright and you know we're freely to use and he's created a light an IP from yeah they're there and they're free to use I, I wonder if that's why ABC decided to make Grimm instead of um, mm. uh, instead of making Fables because yeah. making their own thing they don't have to pay any money to DC Vertigo yeah. or Bill Willingham yeah and they've got great yeah. control haven't yeah. they of course yeah. and the same with uh, Once Upon yeah. a Time so we've obviously mentioned the video game influencing The Wolf Among Us but um, I was reading on the Wikipedia entry for Fables that a game called Dark Parables was based on it I mean I've not that's not a game I'm familiar with at all. No, I've never heard no. of it. 
No. So yeah, the okay. popular blue tea game series, obviously not that popular in, in our case, was inspired by favourites. I'm just looking at it. So it's described as a casual game series in the popular hidden object oh, scene gosh. genre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why we've never heard of it. <laughs> but it is unique in that it has continuity between storylines, between Ooh. the 10 games mm. in the series. <laughs> <laughs> what platform is that on? Uh, it is on PC, Mac, iOS and Android. Oh, okay. There you go. There's a future playlist. <laughs> yeah, that's that's homework for Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> our contact details. You can stream or directly download our episodes as MP3s via our Podbean homepage, which is of course uh, lapsgameradio.podbean.com. You can also find the full show notes for each of our episodes at our blog at lapsgamer.com, and check out our video content at lapsgamer YouTube. And the, it's also Laps Gamer for our Twitch stream too. If you're enjoying our content, please subscribe to the Laps Gamer Radio on iTunes. Uh, all reviews are most welcome and appreciated in order to, to allow our little community to thrive. We'd also love to hear your feedback on the podcast or any ideas you might have. And we welcome any questions you would like us to discuss on the show. Plus, if you'd like to guest on a specific episode or even join the regular LGR podcast team, please shoot us over an email to lapsgamerradio at gmail.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter at LapsGamer and like or comment on our LapsGamer Radio page on Facebook. If you search for LapsGamer Radio on Facebook, you should be able to add yourself to our LGR Facebook group, where we sometimes have extra game code giveaways. If you're on Steam, you can also add yourself to the LapsGamer group. We hope you found something to enjoy in other than our forays into the expanded media of video games. Whether it be a comic, a book, a TV show, or even a board game, it might just provide the impetus needle to rekindle the love of gaming that has lapsed within you. And if you've got any ideas, send them to us. We're quite happy to explore anything. So take care, and until next time, goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.